Scene 19. Lady in the Red Dress. Mick Ayers. Read by Joshua Stenkamp, followed by original audio recording. When I first decided to begin this journey, Mick Ayers was the third person I contacted to be a part of this book. Mick is not only an outstanding magician, but also a storyteller, musician, writer, and local historian. Jason and I load up in my car for a small six-hour road trip from Orlando to Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. The drive was filled with re-listening to past interviews and talking about the man we were about to meet. After passing through Savannah, Georgia, we made it to the southern tip of South Carolina on a rainy afternoon. Jason and I checked into our hotel and went downstairs to find a good place to sit. A few minutes later, Mick Ayers happily strolled into the lobby with a warm smile. We sat down at a table with complimentary water and a phone consistently ringing in the background. This is like take number nine, so <laughs> we're here with Mick Ayers. Uh, thank you for sitting with us. You're welcome. Glad to be a part of this project. Uh, it's very conversational, okay. so we just kind of ask questions and see where it goes. So the main thing is kind of how did you get your start in magic or performing? Um, how did I get my start? Oh, uh, well, God, this is going to sound cliche. I had an uncle who uh, did a magic trick to me. Uh, he took a nickel and rubbed it into the skin of his elbow. And this was right after this was right after I'd seen a magician come to my school and do an assembly program. So I, I went home with this interest in magic, but I didn't know what to do with it. My parents had six children and I was a number three of six kids. So um, my dad gave me an old, there wasn't no money laying around for my new hobby, basically. <laughs> so I, uh, uh, my mom gave me buttons out of her sewing kit. And I learned to do coin tricks with buttons. And my dad gave me an old deck of cards from the military days held together by a rubber band. And, and then one day, about five weeks later, my uncle popped in for a week or three, you know, one of those uncles. And uh, he asked me about my school year. When I told him about the magic show, he, he said, hey, I know a magic trick. And I thought, oh, you're a magician. And he only knew one trick. <clears throat> Knowing my uncle, he learned it in a bar. Right. So, uh, but he... Uh, but he, he rubbed this coin into the skin of his elbow and he did it right under my nose. I wasn't like at, at the school auditorium, seven rows from the front, 35 feet from the guy. He had a fancy painted box and a rabbit and all this stuff. This is my uncle with a, court, a nickel he bought, took out of my pocket. And, and this was in the 60s and, he, and it was the coolest thing in the world. And then uh, the best thing he did was I, I pestered him and pestered him until he finally taught me how to do it. But he made me practice it. He, he told me he would tell me to me only if I practiced it for an hour before I showed it to anybody else. And uh, and I, I remember saying to him, why is it that hard to do? And he goes, no, I just I just think if you're going <clears> to <throat> you're going to try to impress everybody, make them think you're doing a magic trick. Your audience deserves that you practice in front of a mirror, not on them. And after all these years of working with Disney and show producers and agents and everything over the years, my, my one trick uncle has everybody beat <laughs> practice on it, practice in front of a mirror, not on your audience. Anyway, the, the first time I did the trick, this is a, there's a bit of a story here and I'm really trying to shorten it up, but no need. I, uh, well, I, um, after an uncle, after an hour, my uncle deemed me ready to go forth and mystify, you know? So I, I, I went to my mom who's in the kitchen and she was, putting together a meal and um, I asked her if I could borrow a coin and she stopped and rummaged through a purse and pulled out a quarter. So I took the quarter and I said, mom, I'm going to shove this into, into the skin of my elbow. And 
you would think a mom would dive across the counter and stop her kid from doing, shove some metal under your skin. But my mom just didn't. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so I, uh, I rubbed it on the skin of my elbow. You know, I did the whole fake transfer thing. It ends up back here on the collar. You know the deal. Yeah. And it, uh, anyway, her reaction was so cool. It sealed it. It sealed me to this stuff. It, she couldn't finish a sentence. How did you, I don't get, where did that, you know, she couldn't finish a sentence. So um, she finally said, this is where everything went wrong. She goes, where is it? And I did what every kid does at that age. And I shrugged my shoulders. <laughs> I don't know. I gave her the I don't know answer. And when I shrugged my shoulders, that coin slid off the my my collar. under. It was under my T-shirt collar. It slid off my shoulder, went down the inside of my T-shirt. Now, my T-shirt was tucked in my jeans in those days So because uh, I was cool. This is the 60s. You know, <laughs> and I was a thinner young man I'm not so thin and it went down my left pant leg and it was as it traveled on its merry little journey down my it tickled you know it was cold <laughs> I, and I was thinking oh man this is I, this is dumb I had my mom so fooled but when this thing falls out of my pant leg and hits the kitchen floor she's gonna look see it and the cat's out of the bag I forgot I was wearing my older brother's hand-me-down sneakers they were a size and a half too big Jeez. and had a sheer dumb luck coin went on on the side and angled right into that left kid sneaker so now the the coin my mom had just seen me rub into my um, elbow was now inside my left shoe and to her i hadn't moved a muscle <laughs> even at eight years old i was smart enough to play this up so I, she said well i've had enough she put her hand out and said well i've had enough of this silly young game this silly little game young man uh give me back my quarter so I went, yes, ma'am. And I put my foot up on a stool and uh, untied my shoe. I took my shoe off. She's wondering, what the hell am I doing with this shoe? <laughs> and she still had her hand out waiting. So I took the shoe and I shook it. And the quarter fell out of the toe of the shoe, bounced off the heel and landed in my mom's hand. <laughs> right? So my mom's reaction then was she looked at the shoe. She looked at me. She went back and forth like, a, <laughs> like she's watching a tennis match. And finally, she stuck her hand back out and went, do it again. <laughs> and I found out I can't really. Right. That, but, but, but that seal that I thought, God, I got to go through that again with somebody. And so I screwed up the trick completely, but, but it worked out brilliantly. And, and to this, I, I joke when I tell people that story, then I go, you know, the, so um, to this day, after all these years, I've never been able to repeat the first trick I ever did. You've only seen half of it, you know, <laughs> but I hope you liked it. So, That's awesome. Yeah. But it's a true story. It's a true story. I, like you were saying earlier, how I know you guys are in, in this in this project. You're talking about, um, uh, you know, a magician prepares is the title of the book, right? So you're talking about how you prepared for that and all the stuff you went through to to be ready for that. God, I wish I had had time. But at the same time, I, I'm so glad I didn't get that gig because I got the one that was perfect for me, even though I didn't know it. I thought at the time the they just took all the wind out of my sails when they said, we can't use you at Epcot. Right. I'm not good enough, you know. And then they sent me up here and I realized, whoa, this is a serious step up. Yeah. You used to uh, street perform, correct? Yeah. I was a busker for many years. I fed my family doing it for a while. But when I, but to prepare for all that and everything else, is, um, I think that's so critical about, uh, like I tell that story as, as part of my regular one of the one of the shows I do is, is magic, but I'm also a storyteller of tall tales, and um, 
and I do a lot of music on a variety of instruments, about six of them. And, and so a lot of my shows are a blend of the three um, interests, disciplines, you know, that's what they are. And, uh, but there's somewhere it's just magic, somewhere it's just story, somewhere it's just music. But majority of them are some kind of a blend. But it fits, everything has to fit this character role I do. Like you said you had to fake the English accent and stick with it, even on your voicemail. I do the same thing. I can slip into that blue voice, you know, without even thinking about it. Even my kids go, don't be blue right now, Dad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah. Not, because you, you perform, I mean, you perform at the Hilton Head Disney Resort. That's where I'm at now. And then you have the character named Blue, because um, I haven't recorded what you guys were talking about yeah. earlier. But what, what was like the birth of that character? When I first got here, um, I performed under my, my real name. They didn't have an idea about doing a character. And um, <clears throat> fighting a chess thing. Um, they didn't really have an idea for it, but they... They, uh, after about three months, they, they decided um, this was an opportunity to have a character here. We got this guy and he's performing. I wasn't brought on as a cast member. I don't, I don't like uh, pass out pool towels or do shifts on the lifeguard stand or anything like that. Um, I was just brought in as an entertainer to try to interact with the guests and, and do it in a um, homespun kind of way. Because the whole theme of the resort, if you see it, it's all based on a night. It's themed after a 1940s low country fishing lodge from the Sea Islands. It's people hunted and fished a lot. So everything has this rustic feel to it. And, uh, and everything we do carries that theme through, like, you know, Disney. So, uh, and I fit right in because I'm supposed, I, my character is named Blue. They wanted to give it kind of a clever name. And so I came up with a bunch of them. <laughs> My favorite one didn't get picked. My favorite one was was Ebenezer Tide, T-Y-D-E, Eb Tide. He had a wife named Flo. And <laughs> was, uh, I was really gonna, I was really going to have a uh, have a field day with that, but it turned out when they do the copyright searches, the Disney lawyers do that. They found somebody else who thought of that idea. I'm thinking, no kidding, it's too good not to use. Right. So. Um, so they took the second one. I, I came up with like five of them, but the second one was Bartholomew Lewis Crab, and the nickname was B apostrophe uh, L O U. The the first letter B and the first syllable of the middle name. So B Lou looks like blue, and with the last name C Crab C R A B B E, it looks like blue crab. And and I, when I when I entered it, the name I like it because it gives me an icebreaker right there. People go, how do you pronounce? Is that B Lou or Baloo, and you know Baloo is the bear from Jungle Book. I'm, my name's just Blue, like the color, and then, um, and then I tell them how I got the name, and then I can look at one of the dads. Go, you're right, sir. There were a lot of fights in the playground that first year, <laughs> but now everyone calls me Blue. So, um, but I, I, they asked me if I would, if I had an idea, they want to turn into a character, and we were just, it was an experiment. So I came up with this name. They gave me a name tag. I had the vest and the hat already that I was wearing. And uh, it which I wore chose the best because it gives me so many pockets to, yeah. you know, it's like fisheries vest. It, yeah, like an it, well, it's called an outdoor vest. You can you can put fishing lures in it or camera lenses if you're a photographer or whatever. But it, but I look like a I look like an island codger who stepped off a creek boat after a day of fishing. That's what I look like when I'm in character, and um, and and everything I do fits that. There's usually a story involved behind things, quite a bit. Like, 
uh, since we're talking about magicians carrying the, the thing over, I, I have a, a chop cup routine I do with with a, I, I took one of the old Morrissey chop cups, the, the the cheap ones that he sold. Right, I wanted I didn't want to spend more than five bucks on it. I bought it used at a convention, and the guy says, the "Guy said, here I got a nice shiny one." I go. Will you sell me the demo? <laughs> and, he goes, Why? and I took and I took a ball peen hammer to it and I scratched it up and I beat this thing down. Because if you turn a chop cut like one of those aluminum ones upside down, what does it look like? It looks like the lid of a thermos bottle. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a story that I tell about my uncle Otis, who uh lives right on across Broad Creek from the resort. And when we were kid when I was a kid, he'd take me out fishing and we, he's pretty competitive, and and uh, he used to play this little game with me to to see who had to clean the fish, and and I always lost. But I'll show you the game. Uh, he'd take the lid of his thermos bottle, and he'd take a fishing bobber, and I took, I have a couple of cork bottles that I painted half red, half white. They look like and they're cork, and the, and it, the more they flake, and I, I bang them up, the better they look. <laughs> That's correct. So um, so and then I go through this chop cup routine, and then my final loads are um tangled balls of fishing line that I here you untangle that you want anybody want to untangle this and they don't want to touch it that's anybody okay. that's ever fished knows that what a nightmare that is <laughs> and I got two or three of them at the end so it all fits the character right. and we'd have the guessing game is it in the pocket or you know it's a, it's basically a standard chop cup routine I just changed the props right and um and I, I just so that's that's what I did but I uh I feel that the character role though uh, if if somebody was to ask me, yeah, if they go, well, where are you from originally? I as and I'm in character. I tell them, well, my they, the last name Crab is, is we're Scots Irish. My my great 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 whatever grandfather left Scotland in uh, the early 1600s and traveled across the border into Ireland because he wanted to marry an Irish girl. He met a girl and married her in three months. Go, Grandpa. <laughs> and uh, he's, he brought her over on a ship and they uh, across the ocean once they got married. And they came into Boston, but they settled in what is now Connecticut. Uh, back then, it wasn't even a state. But by the mid-1700s, they had to leave because of crop failures and Indian problems. And the family split up. Half of them wanted to go back to Boston where they came into the country and settle back there. The other half had to find out what was over the next horizon. So they joined the Scots-Irish migration through um, Pennsylvania down to the Carolinas. And I'm part of that Southern extension. And we like to tell folks that the Yankee half of our family got all the politicians and the, and the doctors and the lawyers the southern half ended up with all the pirates, the horse thieves, and the storytellers, <laughs> the colorful side of the family. We, we don't make a whole lot of money in the southern half, but we're a hoot at the reunions. <laughs> and But <clears throat> now, see, that's all in character, right. but that's also true. That's my family's background. I do have distant cousins. Facebook has put me in touch with them now, and I'm I'm connecting with people that I've, I've been aware of but never knew all my life. And... You know, they're like <laughs> Boston, live in Marblehead. What are you? What do you live in a trailer park? You're just <laughs> South Carolina. Yeah, and I married my cousin. No, I no, I did not. I did not marry my cousin. <laughs> now, I, your, your character has a dog. My character has a great dog. Yeah, yeah. Um, Shadow. Um, 
I'm, I'm hesitating because I don't know how far I'm stepping outside my bounds. Disney, Disney uh, attorneys yeah, get about uh, this sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, don't say anything to <laughs> I don't know how much it'll get published. I almost want to read it before you publish it. Um, I just have to be careful. Sure. Uh, Shadow is the Disney mascot at the resort. She's the only live animal mascot Disney has in any property in the world. And um, she's a sweetheart of a dog. She's a golden retriever, very quiet, very well behaved. Um, I don't want to say highly trained because she does about five or six things at the drop of a hat. She'll heal. She'll give you a pause. She'll sit. She'll lay down. But the biggest thing we have her trained not to do is to is not to jump up on people. Her paws. She doesn't get any attention unless all four paws are on the ground. But she's a legend at the resort, and um, and uh, she and I get to work with her a lot. So so sometimes when people go, "What do you do for Disney?" I'm tempted to go, "I hold a leash." <laughs> And this is let make a ask question. I don't know if you can answer you question yeah. because of the Disney thing, but was um was the Shadow was she already at the resort or was that something? Yeah, she was character? part of the backstory for the longest time. I will I will tell you this that we 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 tell folks we didn't bring her out for the first two or three years the resort was open because um her backstory I can tell you her backstory even though she's not here the this is the Disney backstory now. Okay. That's right. Uh, that she was, um, <clears throat> we noticed during the construction phase of the resort, we noticed one day there was this golden retriever, cute little puppy dog hanging around with the construction workers. And they had taken the nicknaming her shadow because the dog was always following right behind you. The puppy was always underfoot. You're constantly tripping over. Her. So uh, it took us two and a half months before it dawned on everybody that whole time. All those construction workers have been assuming the cute puppy dog belonged to one of the Disney people. So Shadow managed to find herself a great home by convincing everybody someone else owned her. <laughs> um, they, uh, they said you'd be working in a room sawing boards or something. And you'd hear one of your coworkers behind you knock over a box of nails or a bucket of paint. And you'd make a huge mess. And you would turn, o- turn around to holler at whoever been clumsy. But all you would see instead of a coworker was that little was what was left of that puppy dog's uh, shadow as she darted around the corner trying to get out of shouting range. So um, while you were on your hands and knees wiping up the mess with paper towels and rags, to Shadow's point of view, you were now down on puppy level. So she'd come back in the room and start licking you in the face. It was cute. You couldn't stay mad at her. So, uh, But this taught the dog early on in life, apparently it's okay to get into trouble as long as you come out of it smelling like roses. <laughs> And if there's a kid there, I'll go, you know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Um, and then the, uh, and, and then I tell him, but the, um, by the time we celebrated with our grand opening, nobody had the heart to separate Shadow from the island she called home. And so she's been part of the package deal from the first day we opened their doors. And, and now she's, today, she's the only live animal mascot Disney has on any property in the world. That's awesome. So she's really unique to us. And, and um, uh, so there, and now the guests at that point, we have a program called Shadow's Tale. Okay. And, and basically I walk Shadow in and we, we sit down and I introduce her and the kids come around and start petting her. It's in a den. We have a den called Big Murgy's Den named after an elusive fish that no one has caught in the, in the creek. And, and um, <clears throat> I sit there with her and answer any questions. And by this time, after 16 years, I've heard pretty much all of them. Every now and then, the 
the parents will try to trap me. How old is this stuff? Well, she's she's a girl. She's, she's eight, maybe 19, same as your wife. <laughs> and they go, no, uh, they, they go, um, no, really. We, we, she, she's, how old is she? I go, eight, maybe 19. But she's a girl, sir. I don't ask you how much she weighs either. I can get bit. <laughs> and then, and I said, look at all the other dads in the room right now. They're all thinking, Hey, I go to your church on that answer, blue. <laughs> so, and, uh, and then they said, well, when was the resort open? And I'll tell them the truth. We opened up on March 1st, 1996. And, and then they, and I said, you're doing the math now, aren't you? And they go, yeah. And then I tell them, would it help you if I told you we put a spoonful of pixie dust in her water dish once a month? It, <laughs> it dilutes the water. The water dilutes it so she can't fly. But it does make her light on her toes for a few days. But it gets rid of the gray completely, keeps her young and full of energy. <laughs> and before you ladies ask, they won't tell me where they're storing it. I, <laughs> I've looked and they, they, they think I want to fly too. I tell them I just want to get rid of the gray. It's working for the dog. <laughs> so... I have answers for everything and, and stories within stories, layers upon layers. And it's deep. So after a while, I'm, I'm pretty convinced there are a lot of folks now living around the country and around the world that are convinced blue crab is my honest to God real name and, right. and, and shadow just ain't never going to die. Was it you just sitting down and just coming up with these stories? I mean, it's for it because like kind of the happy accidents question that we ask people, it's like how much of how many things have gone wrong on stage or that <laughs> have given you? We don't have time. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, I'll tell you about it. You can't ask the questions a little more. Full Monty <laughs> in the middle of my show. Well, yeah, you know, it's like, I mean, working as much as we do in, in the resorts. Yeah. And we were talking about this on the phone. You're just, it's trial by fire. You're out there working, working, working. And even Todd Robbins, we listened to Todd Robbins and it's on the way up. And he said the same thing. About working Coney Island, it's like you do a show and you're into the next show. You know, like you've just got another show and you're just in that, and stuff goes wrong. And at the end, you there are days when you go home and you go, I don't even remember if I did that first show. And I have to look at my calendar. Yeah, I did show up for that show. Go to that show. Yeah, I was there. (laughs) Yeah, it it all kind of plays together. But the the kind of where he was going is, yeah, it's like the little things that audiences throw out at us that. go wrong in the... What did you call it? Trial by fire? I call it trial by fire by a number of shows or happy accidents happy that happen in our shows. And then you get great material out of it. And then yeah. it sticks. Like, they were in, what was it, Play Dead, there was, it wasn't, I wouldn't call it a happy accident, but it was certainly a moment in, in the show early on that ended up going into the show. Was There was a moment that they literally stopped the show and there was a real human-to-human moment of like, I am really sorry that this just went down. But they learned from that. They didn't keep the piece as it was. They changed it slightly and they added this story into the show. So it it added to it, essentially. Right, right. I, I've had, um, God, I've had so many things like that happen where... Um, well, first off, I, I don't get on stage. It's, it's like I play musical instruments and my friends, hey, come over and listen to us play. We're playing at this bar, you know, and then they go, they, they go, hey, we got Nick here in the room. Did you bring your mandolin? Come up here and join us. And I go, man, I don't get behind the microphone without rehearsing. Right. Because one of two things is going to happen. You guys are going to make me look bad or I'm going to make you look bad because I don't know this stuff. I play old time music, you know, and I'm a, you want to play a jigger reel from, from Ireland or something. I'm your guy, but you, you want to play uh, 
the Donium reversion of cocaine, man. I don't know. That's just wrong, isn't it? I'm sorry. As far as like your on, on ukulele. <laughs> exactly. As far as like your responses, like like well, when people ask you things and then you chime in with your your kind of your, your quick wit one liners. I mean, was it that you just kept playing around with those liners so you found the perfect one, or do they constantly change for the questions that are being asked? I'm a big proponent of scripting, and uh, I know there are guys that go, "Well, yeah, I don't think you have to script and say it by because," and then they say, "Don't do it because then you sound like you're saying it by rote," you know, and I think. That's because that's not because the scripting isn't a good idea. That's because you're a crappy actor, and uh, and it, it is, it is, and it, it's it's not. It is, it's um, I think you have the audience wants that within reason. They want that. Um, they they want to know they're in good hands. Yeah, and it does. If that makes sense, yes, they want them to know they're in good hands, and um, because. We are, you and I went, we're, I'm still there. I'm in this very unique um, contracted existence. You know, it's kind of like the guys who go out on the cruise ships. They do their shows and they have this, and they're kind of in a set area. People get to know them and they go back. Tim Harkelrode did that for God. He lives in Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and he flew down to Florida every week. And he would spend two or three days out at sea, three, three or four days at sea, come back and they would fly him back home to Tennessee. And then he'd fly back out the next week. He did that for 27 years. <clears throat> yeah. And that guy, and he did ventriloquism. He did all sorts of things. And there are some things you adjust on the fly, like things that happen. But the great thing about the gig for me is that if I create an effect and I want to put something in and I think this will work, I can field test it. In, in, a, in a month, I can field test in hundreds of shows in front of thousands of people from all over the world. And by that time, I've known where it works. I've worked out the bells and whistles pretty solid yeah. by that point, far above average. And it's got to be frustrating. I'm totally off the beaten path here. No, no but it's one of the frustrating things is that we do all this stuff and we put all this stuff together. And I know the acts have to get tight or else Disney will just say, it's been a good run. Thanks. Here's your seven day notice in a paycheck. <laughs> and that's it. You know, that what we call that ax hanging over our head. But I know the acts are tight and I know the guys that do this kind of thing with regularity, they've got incredible chops. And once I see guys like you and others perform, I'm so enraptured by that. Even on video, I watch and I go, man, I really wish I could have seen that live. And, uh, because it was so clean and tight. And you're not going, they don't, they don't have you at conventions. They got the same guys over and over again. And I think, okay, they're, they're okay. But there's a whole underbelly to the conjuring industry of, of people that are incredibly good and no one knows their names. I got some guys right now over in England. They're talking about me because there's some, some guy of their God bless him. His name is Mick Wilson. And he, he thinks anything I write is the bee's knees. So he, and uh, so he, he writes all these words of prayer. And every time he does it, I, my sales skyrocket in, <laughs> in my ebook department, right? And uh, God bless, God bless Mick Wilson. But he even says, I mentioned this guy's name, Mick Gerstow. They think it's, they, they've never even heard of him. And I go, no, because I don't go to conventions. I, would, I, go to, I used to go to the one in uh, Columbia, oh. the South Carolina Association of Magicians, yep. Scam, Scam, the yeah. Scam Con. And um, <clears throat> I, and only because it was two hours away. But if I go, I have to be back here the next day to perform. So I can't go comfortably down to uh, 
and perform in Orlando, say, and just and do a whole series and then come back because I'm 56, man. That's a young man's game. Now, you know? <laughs> I want another. I want a day to relax. <laughs> I want to stay overnight in the hotel, or I can't. If I do lectures, I get asked to do them, but I, I can't really warrant the time. The furthest I've ever been away to do a lecture was Lynchburg, Virginia, oh, wow. and because, and I had to, I had to drive eight hours up there and I had to drive eight hours back the next day and. And I thought, man, I don't want to do that again. I mean, I had great time at the lecture and the, the guys were excellent hosts, but it was just too far out of my comfort zone. Yeah. But, but to get back to your point there, Joshua, they, um, the, the, the script that I follow isn't something I do by right because I'm acting, I'm, I'm playing that role. And, um, uh, magicians quote, um, Jean-Eugène, um, Robert Houdin, and they say a magician is is an actor playing the role of a magician, and they forget the other half of that. The other half of it is about how much preparation goes into it to create the illusion and everything else, and and what the role of it is. It, it's more than just that. So I don't I don't want to go on stage without the foundation of a script under my under my belly that I know cold. And uh, if, if I sit at home and I practice, I perform for couches and furniture a lot. I started, I started taking unknown people and I would print, I would print headshots <laughs> of people I didn't know. And I would, and I would lay them, I would scotch tape them to the couches. And to, so when I turned and looked at a chair, I was looking at a human face and, and I would address the lady or the kid or whatever. And, and so when I go out there, if I have to deviate, we have one of those human moments that you said Todd Robbins was talking about. They happen. But uh, when they do, I'm, I'm still okay. I'm still in control because I can, I can talk, address that, have fun with it, see where it goes. Because I know where I'm going back to and to continue the show on from there. Or I, I have that foundation. And that's what I think it does in that construction or script writing. It's critical. That you, that you do that. So when those moments come up, I can play with them because I know where I'm going to go. Eventually the show overall is going to still be a solid show when it's over. This, this isn't going to throw me off my game. And frankly, at this stage, I'm, I'm so comfortable on, on Disney property that <clears throat> when I step off property and have to do a show that's not on property, I get the willies again. I like do the, I, what if they don't like me? You know, all those, all that built-in sense of paranoia that we tend to have right. as performing artists, it creeps back in, and and I don't know, I I feel uneasy about it, <clears throat> Un uneasy about it completely. So it's just it's just funny how I, I can be really comfortable because at Disney they're warm audiences. They assume if you're there, you you don't suck at what you do. <laughs> and so exactly. Not too bad anyway. Right. And so they 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 come in they come in ready to have a good time. And they're on your side, so to speak. They're friendly. They're warm. When you were street performing, um, was it like, what, did you have a character sheet for me or was it just a heightened sense of you? Um, that was more, um, uh, that was a heightened sense of me. Um, God, I don't know how to say this to you guys, but, I, you know, and I, I did the, I, I, you know, I wore the, um, I wore a black outfit I had a bowler derby on and everything because I, I, cause I like the derby and also because I had an effect where a card ended up inside the hat. I, I, I could do one little slight where I could pop a card. You know, the guys go and they catch it over here. I, could, I would just hold the cards here and as I, I would control it and as I brought it down here, I'd just shoot it right into the hat and then turn the hat this way and nobody saw it because it was blocked. And um, 
little things like that that I, I wouldn't be caught dead in now, you know, <laughs> but especially, but the black stuff, everybody goes, why are you black? Because I don't, because the sweat don't feel as bad. And, and I'm in the South. I've always been in the South. So the humidity, but, you know, well, you're, Florida, you're, right? you're a Kentucky guy. Kentucky originally. Yeah. yeah. So, and then now you're in Florida where the humidity is even heavier. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> he likes it though. I love it. Yeah. I had the windows down on the way here. He's like, roll them up. It's cold. It's like, this crazy. It's cold today. <laughs> I'm a professional Southerner. We believe that when the temperature gets near 50, we should close the schools. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, the, uh, uh, when my busking days came about me by default, I was working in a magic shop as a manager. And, uh, <clears throat> it was a, it was one week into June, which meant the high season up in the Myrtle Beach area. And um, my wife and I just had our first daughter. She was just six months old, maybe. And the guy um, from the magic shop called me and said, uh, this isn't working out. I'm going to let you go. And And I went, what do you mean it's not working out? I thought you were laughing all the way to the bank. You're making money. I'm doing and he said, well, it's just people are in. And this is what he told me. He said, people are coming in and and uh, I don't, what, what's making me mad is you're telling everybody that you own the shop. And I go, I've, I've never said that to anybody in my life. Why, why would I do that? And he said, uh, well, they're coming in. And, and when I'm there working, they go, hey, I want to speak to the owner. And they go, uh, he go, I am the owner. And they go, no, the other guy. <laughs> And, uh, and and I said, well, it's just because I was treating it like it was my own store, which is what you want an employee to do. But I, so I was trying to wrap my head around it. Why was he letting me go with no notice? And he said, finally, he said, it's my name on the shop wall. I want my shop to reflect my personality as a performer and not yours. And I thought, okay, so you let me go because you're thin skinned. <laughs> and he goes, well, you look at how you want. I said, I'll drop the key off later. And I sat there brooding for about 10 minutes. Now, the shop was in a heavily trafficked area in Myrtle Beach that was patterned loosely um, like a two-by-four version of, um, of downtown Disney. You know, it was on a lake. There were restaurants and a merry-go-round and lots of stores and all that. And so um, and I, I sat there for 10 minutes. And I, what do I do? I've got I've got, I've got a he, he, he just let me go. He didn't give me any notice at all. I got two hours notice. And so I called the, um, the operations manager of that facility. And he knew me because he would come in in the morning in the magic shops to drink coffee. I'd show him a card trick and he'd walk off happy. Every morning it was like a little routine. So his name was, his name was Mike. And I called him and, and I said, um, hey, I'm no longer with the, the magic shop. And I was wondering... Um, because all the other stuff around here in Myrtle Beach, all the resorts have been booked for their children's programs there for the summer. You get that done back in March and February, but here it is in the high season. I wasn't going to get hired on anywhere. So I was going to have to, I thought, I'll busk. I got to do something. I'll make a living. And, and, I, and I said, would you mind if I did some uh, atmosphere performance? As, as, as a magician. And he goes, yeah, I know you're, you're all right. He goes, when, when do you want to start? I said, well, I could start this evening if you want. And he goes, come in anytime. And I said, where do you want me to be? And he said, by the merry-go-round, which, which was like the prime spot. I couldn't believe he just handed it to me. <laughs> and, uh, well, what got frustrating is the guy who owned the magic shop, uh, his shop door was like 50 yards from that 
place. Mm-hmm. So here's the guy he just let go later that night. He was working an extra long shift because he had anybody replace it. And every time he rang up a cell, he had to look out the window and see me doing magic outside of his magic shop. Oh, he complained and all this stuff, but it didn't fly. And I ended up working there. Eventually, um, I worked that that little place for the next, I worked there for a couple of years. Um, uh, it was tight in the, in the winter, you know, so I had one of those things where I would just do whatever I could. I would pick up uh, private engagements and stuff here and there. I did a lot of traveling at that in the winter time. I, I performed in churches a lot. I had a, I had a, 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 a well, it was a gospel-oriented show, but I had a different approach to it. It was called In the Wink of an Eye, and I earmarked it specifically towards youth groups, teenagers. And but I have a theory about gospel shows too. I feel like they should be done. Uh, so many guys say, "Well, I'm just going to do a gospel show," and they're going to get all these gospel tricks and put them together. Well, that's that's like a pastor getting up and delivering a disjointed sermon on multiple subjects with no continuity between them. Uh, because the gospel tricks aren't designed like that. So I would get up and do two or three. I'm just messing with you. Let's have some fun tricks, you know, coins, cards, sponge balls, whatever, and, um, paper balls over the head kind of things. And, uh, and then I would do an effect that had a very clear message to it. And then I would do a couple more, just goofing off, having some fun. And then I would do one more effect that had a message to it that tied in with the first one. And that was my show. Man, it took me all over the country and to Canada and Mexico. Yeah, I went to Andre Cole came to St. Cloud when I was about 15, and someone ran up to me and was like, oh, I have a ticket for this magician named Andre Cole. I'm like, say what? Andre Cole? He's like, yeah, I thought you would like it. He's going to be performing at our church. I didn't know he was doing gospel shows or something like that. He's amazing. Oh, it was great. He, he did exactly kind of what you were explaining. It was just, you know, a couple of illusions and then one with the message. A couple of illusions, one with the message, and then he ended with, you know, making a Statue of Liberty disappear or something like that. It was... Yeah, but when he makes that Statue of Liberty disappear, man, I, from the bottom up, man, I tell you what, I, I, grand illusion, that guy, that guy does it. I just I have no idea how he's doing that. I just don't, but I, I like it. I got, you know, like it wouldn't, uh, I keep myself purposely ignorant of some, some fields of magic. Like I don't, I don't know a whole lot about dove work. I mean, I know about harnesses and pockets and all that. I don't do it. So I'm not privy to it. And when, when it comes up, I just kind of look the other way and I go in because I want to be kind of ignorant. Grand Illusion, I want that way too because um, Grand Illusion to me is fairly predictable. You know, the girl's going to get in the box, they're going to do something to the box to make it think like they, and then the girl's going to hop back out of the box. But um, whenever friends of mine and I would get together and we would go watch, say, David Copperfield, and he would take a pretty girl by the hand, walk into an industrial fan, and then reappear on a motorcycle behind us, I'd be going, How the heck did he do that? And my friends are going, uh, Mick, if you want to know how he does it, let me know. I have that illusion in my garage. I don't know. Don't tell me because Copperfield's up there reminding me why I love this stuff so much. I don't get fooled that often, but when I do, I don't want no magician screwing it up around me. Yeah. So. Uh, now, so I went back, I went into busking and I ended up doing that for several years, fed the family on it and, and everything. I, I, I called it, um, I was going I called it Mr. Mick's pocket tricks and I made up a sign for it and everything else. And, and it had a lot of um, it had a lot of things I was doing like on a grander scale. Like I, I, I did I did um, one of my favorite effects to do in those days was cards across, and I found out I could do Zen's ultimate cards across from my best. Yeah. You can do it with jumbo cards because it takes no palming or anything, nice. and it's great on the street. Yeah, and uh, 
but things like that. Uh, I did a chop cut thing. Um, uh, try, I did, I dragged it out a little bit. Um, but not like, not like Gazo drags out the cups and balls. I, I say dragging out. I can watch him do it for 30 minutes and I'm thoroughly entertained. And I feel if you, if you take just what he did with the cups and balls, it's like a three minute routine stretched out each minute, stretched out 10 more. When you were busking, I mean, were you still scripting everything? Oh, heck yeah. But, because I really want to talk to you about scripting. So we haven't really spoken to anyone who's, because I mean, I've written, I've read your stuff and the scripting is unbelievable in the way that you write. Thank you. Was it, um, I mean, what got you? Did you always like writing? Was it just a thing where you went, I, I'm really into this and <clears throat> just going to help my magic out and my performance or? The way I got into scripting, there were, there were two incidences that happened. One of them's kind of a funny story. When I was working for Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, Ron Conley was the general manager of the, of the museum. They built one in Myrtle Beach, and he was the official magician for Ripley's. I think he took Paul Rossini's place. And um, anyway, this was back in the mid-'70s, and they came to Myrtle Beach, and I was working at a theme park called Magic Harbor, running a tiny magic shop that um, called Hugo Greystone's Magic Emporium. Hugo Greystone was a character created by Paul Osborne. Uh, the the illusion maker guy and he was he had a contract with Paramount and PepsiCo, Pepsi Company to to run that theme park, and they had a little magic shop and I was a kid and they went in and they go what do you want to do I, I I just wanted a job I would have scraped bubble gum off the asphalt that age, but they said uh, what do, do you have any hobbies What do you like to do What what's what are your interests and I said well I like magic and they go we have a magic shop do you you want to work in there, and I went yeah, <laughs> and it turned out they had this little tiny magic shop that. And they, they didn't know what to do with it. It was basically full of Adam's products. Most of it was practical jokes, but they had a couple of Delon decks, some Spengali decks. So anyway, Ripley's opened up. And when they came, they brought a real shop with them and stuck it in the bottom of the museum in the corner of the arcade. Really magnificent shop. Lance Burton came in on vacation when he was 13 from Kentucky. Right. And yeah. I, I still have his card. From, you know, Lance Burton, <laughs> man of mystery. You're 13, <laughs> man. That's so awesome. <laughs> he was a nice guy. And so um, <laughs> people like that, they'd come on vacation, so we'd meet them. But during that time, I um, I was pitching things. I was, I was, uh, I learned that what you said affected everything. Because the idea in that shop, we were, we were just off Ocean Boulevard. Oftentimes, we were pitching Svengali decks, cups and balls. Um, all the trick decks, uh, nickels and dimes, stuff like this, to people standing there in bathing suits dripping. They'd come walking off the beach to get a soda at Peach's Corner or to Duffy's Tavern, and they come walking over, and they wanted to, uh, um, oh, what's this? We'll see the magic shop. Because there was, there was a lot of lights in the museum. You could walk in there, and it was air-conditioned. So they come in and stand there. And then you know you're doing something right with this Bengali deck, when you when you finish the thing, and the guy goes, "I'll be back in a bit. Give me five ten minutes." Because he walks, he leaves the shop, walks all the way back out to the beach where his wallet is in his shoe, and he gets finds it, comes back with the money to buy that trick deck because he didn't bring his wallet with him. And the okay, but but you couldn't do that by winging it. You had to know what to say. You had to know where this was going. And, uh, and and that gave you time to add things and take it away. All of us had our own different way of pitching things, but we didn't. They, we talked to one another, but there wasn't any textbook for it, right? I had trouble with the sponge balls at that age because I could do the move and I could do this stuff, but I didn't really. I was kind of awkward about it at first, 
And also, most of the guys, like Mike Abston, did a, he did his whole routine just using two sponge balls and sold them. Mm. They go, why are there four in the box? And I go, oh, in case you lose them. You know, he just made up something. So, uh, but I looked at that and I looked at all the, so I looked at all the routines. There, were, there was a Spongebob routine in Tarbell. Aldley Walsh had a book. Frank Garcia put a book out. And I think it was just about it. And all of their all of their routines required that you wear a sport coat and you have multiple balls of different shapes and colors loaded in various pockets, hip pockets. I didn't have that. I wanted a routine where all four Spongebob started in the right pocket and ended with all four of them in the right pocket. I wanted it to reset because I didn't want to have to go back under the counter. And so I, I borrowed from bits and pieces from everybody um, borrowed a piece from Pat page that I like a, a you know, the hand pocket hand, bit. but Pat page does it backwards from all the magicians. And so when I do it, magicians go, I don't know that sequence. Thank you, Patrick page. <laughs> you know? But so I put this little routine together that did all that. And I, and I created it and it became so popular. The guys kept doing it at Ripley's other guys did it. And then later when I left and went in the military, Mike Abston left Ripley's eventually ended up working with Ken, um, the guy from magic masters. Um, Oh, uh, Ken, I think God, it's right in front of me. It'll hit me at three o'clock in the morning too. And I'm going to call you guys both and wake you up and tell you what it is. Anyway, uh, he, he was, he started off with them early on and, um, went to Atlanta. Then he ended up in Washington, DC. He worked with David Williamson up there for a while. Mike Abston did. He ended up in the Virgin Islands and then out in Vegas until he passed away. But um, uh, he took all that knowledge about how to sell magic to tourists that we had developed at Ripley's. And he brought all that to, to, to Ken. And, and um, he, Ken wanted a manual to teach these guys how to, because he wanted everybody doing things consistently. So Mike took all of those routines we had developed at Ripley's over that three-year period selling them to tourists and he ken fletcher isn't that right yes okay so fletcher no fletcher fletcher yeah so he anyway he um he trained so anyway so it got to where i'd walk into i'd walk into a magic masters down at downtown disney and i'd see some guy like here it is 20 30 years later and he's doing a sponge ball routine and i go that's my routine (laughs) And the guy goes, nah, this, and he goes, nah, man, this routine's been around since dinosaurs, man. It's old. I, go, I know I'm the dinosaur. That wrote it. <laughs> so, but it, it didn't matter. And then, um, and so I, I did it, I did it back at the magic shop in Myrtle beach. And then one day a guy named, um, um, uh, um I think his name is Gary Hudspeth. He came in on vacation. He was with, huh? He was with Hampton Magic Magic Creations for a while, Hampton Ridge. Um, yeah. He came in vacation from Ohio. Okay. I think it was Gary Hudson. And uh, he ended up doing damage to his arm real bad at one point. But he was he was filming stuff, and he, and he came in. He was watching. He was on vacation, but he came in. He goes, you mind if I film your routine with the SpongeBob? Sure. So I, he filmed it. And then um, I never get to tell magicians this crap because I think, who cares? But uh, he he films it and he goes, I, I might use that. And I said, okay, I don't think anything of it. Um, and, uh, he goes off back and a couple of years later, we're, we're ordering stuff from this new company, Hampton Ridge magic creations. And they put out a, a video cassette video, 25 tricks, amazing tricks with the sponge balls, yeah. 25 amazing tricks, yeah. nicely packaged stuff. And they were, yeah. 
And so we're, we're, we're putting these in a plastic Ziploc bag, the videos along with four sponge balls and selling it for God awful amounts to tourists. <laughs> and after about a year of that, one of my friends came in and he says, Hey, Mickey, you ever, you ever watch that video? And I said, no, I just figured it's, I, you know, why I've, I've got a routine I use. Nigga, that routine you taught me, it's on there word for word. I went, really? And I went and, and I put it in for the first time after selling them for a year. It's a great <laughs> sell. And there's that guy, Hudspath, you know, and he's doing the whole thing. And he and right there as, a, as he filmed it. So it went around. It went around. <laughs> so I feel like I was responsible for it a lot of it. <laughs> but, but, but to go back to your question about the scripting, I scripted out this thing. I put it all together. I wanted it to flow. And uh, God, I got him out of the car. I should just walk you through it. But I mean, you guys have seen all this. And when you see it, there's nothing new in it. Right. And it's nothing new. It's just the way I put it together. And it, and it's a workhorse routine because when I worked in tables, I reset during performance at the end, they all vanish and they're all right back here where they started. So I walk again, four steps. I'm on again. There's so no fidgeting. Yeah. There's no having to go back in the back. Right. And reset. So the other thing was, um, and then the other thing was when my mentor, when I moved, when I relocated, the military sent me to Miami, Florida. My mentor was a guy named Kirk Stiles. And uh, Kirk, I think, used to be an assistant to Harry Houdini, but you've seen his name in Bobo's Modern Core Magic. Okay. He made several contributions, some on sleeving. He also did some really neat dice stuff, and he used to he used to contribute. Um, you know, there's a couple of magicians. Uh, Mark Young doesn't live far from here, and he does one of uh, Kirk's routines with a, with two die at once. It's really good, and. Um, Kirk was a, was a nice old man and he said he would help mentor me and teach me stuff because I was a 19 years old down there. And, and when I went from Myrtle Beach down there, I found out how regional magic can be. Like around Myrtle Beach, we had figured out this guy, Paul Harris, was writing books like Super Magic and, yeah. you know, the close-up kind of guy. And the back when they were first coming out, we were gobbling that stuff up. So when I went down there, I'm the only guy in the Miami area doing bizarre twists and things <laughs> like that, you know, and um, and and uh, whack your pack and things. And so everybody thinks I'm this hot shot magician because I'm just doing stuff they haven't seen. So I'm getting all this credit for stuff and, and it started going to my head. And um, <clears throat> and um, so one day I go to this uh, assembly meeting and Kirk was there and um and I, we had been talking. I'd been introduced to him by Russ Burns and Dave, Dave Rumfeld and and, uh, and Paul Diamond. And uh, we go we go to the meeting and and I get up there and I do a few card things and everything. And I, uh, but I was away from the magic shop, so I just I had some card slides I created and I was demonstrating these moves. Anyway, I got done and and Kirk came up to me and he goes, "It was one of those best moment out things, even though it pissed me off at the time." He goes, <laughs> He says, uh, you, you asked me for my help in mentoring you? And I said, yes, sir. And he goes, all right, I want to tell you, tell you something. You've got a lot of really great moves, but you don't have any great tricks to go with them. And, oh, yeah, one other thing. Magic has enough egotistical assholes in it. Don't be another one. And he walked off. <laughs> First lesson is over. Yeah, they're in this lesson. What? But it was a wake-up call, yeah. you know, I really needed. And so after that, I realized that was true when, I, when he said that. And, you know, you guys know you see it all the time on the Internet. There's a lot of guys out there with great chops, and they couldn't present a trick if world peace hung in the balance. Right. But they have great, they have great moves. But, and, they, and everybody, their friends on the Internet and the clubs, 
they're encouraging that, but they're missing the mark. It's like you're hitting the target, but you're not nowhere near the bullseye. You're on the edge of the paper. When you're scripting, because I always, I always found it hard when I was getting into magic was I I would learn an effect and, you know, I would read the pitch, the pattern for it. Mm -hmm. And it was once you've heard the powder pattern, it's hard to break away from it because you automatically associate the effects to those words. Is there, did you ever learn effects where you saw someone perform it? It was this great story, this great move, and you went, I have to come up with my own story. Was it hard for you to break away from the original? That makes any sense. <laughs> uh, well, because because early on I needed to do that with the sponges. Because there I'm, I'm pitching things. I See, there was this other thing that happened, this other dynamic in Myrtle Beach. We, got, we were the last to find out anything. Even though Myrtle Beach was a big destination point in the 1970s, for people on vacation, we were still the major cities that got all the big movies. We would get them two weeks after they came out. We would hear, we heard about Star Wars playing down in, in Charleston, but it didn't come to Myrtle Beach for two more weeks. And when it did, we flooded it. So, and people were always walking in, magicians would walk in and do stuff. And we were always finding out about it secondhand because we were still very small town USA up there. So when, when I was working at that little magic shop at, at, the, at the theme park and I was doing whatever I could with, with the stuff I had, I didn't know anything about pitching because I didn't know anything about scripting. I was just a kid demonstrating stuff because I knew the secrets to it and kind of weaseling my way through it. But when I went to Ripley's, they said, you're going to be selling Swingali decks and cups and balls and stuff. And I went, really? Can I do any, can I sell like the gloves to doves? Because I thought that was cool, the way it worked. But it ain't about being cool. It's about being effective. And my thought was, well, if I know how to do the, the Svengali deck or the cups and balls, then everybody on the planet does. Because we always find out about everything way after the fact. That was my thinking. So when, I, when he told me, no, you, you understand, even though we know about cups and balls, the average person does not. And I thought, no, man. Every, every time I pulled that, it took me a long time to get past the idea that I know you know how this works. Right. Until I realized, no, they don't. <laughs> and, and, and it all became about reactions. It became about getting reactions out of people, putting surprise moments into this Bengali routine. <clears throat> Can I tell you the best advice I ever got in my life? Right. It came from my old friend, Mike Abston. God rest his soul. The day I started working for Ripley's, we were sitting, I got there two weeks at a time. We were packaging stuff. We're sitting cross-legged on the floor of the shop. It's not open yet. And we're just packaging stuff up. We, we had our own line of stuff. And there's two or three of us. And, um, Mike had come from Gatlinburg. Ron Conley had come from, um, Niagara Falls. And they had taken everything that Ripley's was doing with their magic shops at Fisherman's Wharf, uh, Niagara Falls, um, Gatlinburg, St. Augustine, and they were putting it to work in Myrtle Beach. So Mike, he's the manager of the store, and he goes, so Mick, do <clears throat> you know what the number one rule about, about uh, pitching magic is? And I said, no. And he goes, always do the sponge balls to the black lady in the red dress. That's incredible advice. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Yes. Right. At, at, <laughs> but at the time I went, what? And he said, Always do the sponge balls to the black lady in the red dress. He repeated it. And I said, what does that mean? And he says, when the time comes, you'll know. <laughs> you'll know. 
And he went back to doing it. He, he wouldn't explain. I pressured him. Just left it at that. So like two months later, the, the museum's been open for a month and a half or so. I'm working on a Sunday shift and I got there uh, after church and I get there and I'm, I'm, it's, I've been there about an hour when suddenly a, um, a, a, a family of African, an African-American family comes in having a good time. They just come out from church and there's, there must've been 14, 15 of them in this group, right? They come into the arcade to play. They're just enjoying a day on the beach. It's a great time. And the matriarch of the family is this really immense woman in a beautiful, bright red Sunday dress. <laughs> and, and she's got this gorgeous hat on and she walks up and she goes, so entertain me trick boy. <laughs> and I, and I have that quote run through my head. I, I think it must be time to do this. <laughs> so here she is. So I, I, I pull out the balls and I go through the whole thing. And the moment comes when the ball disappears out of my hand and appears in hers. And when that happened, she screamed threw the balls at me, jumped back about two or three feet, which was no easy task for her. She was heavy. And then she ran out of the store screaming something about voodoo and the devil and ran right out to the front. I looked out the window because her whole family went, oh, my gosh, and it went after her. But she's running and screaming, screaming. <laughs> and she goes out on the front porch of Ripley's onto the boulevard in Myrtle Beach and goes down the sidewalk, her family following her. And, and, and I looked, but we were in the corner of an arcade when that woman screamed, Everything stopped dead quiet. The pinball machines, the foosball <laughs> tables, the ski balls, everybody stopped. Every now and then you hear something going ding, ding, ding. But everybody's looking my direction like, what did you do? <laughs> right. And I'm standing there. Remember, I, at this time, I am 15 years old. Oh, and, I, and I look under the counter and there's a whole stack of the boxes. I picked up eight boxes of the Goshman sponge balls and I went, they're four ninety eight, folks, and you two can have fun like that. They come with the instructions, and I I closed the pitch. Right. <laughs> I laid them all out, and I sold every one of them. <laughs> every box I laid on the counter. One guy came up and said, "I don't know what you did to make her do that, but I want one. <laughs> How much is it?" I said, five dollars." Here, <laughs> and that was it. And and it had nothing. It, it's not anything rude. It's just that anybody knows that. Um, um, African-American folks, when they're watching, they, they tend to be a little more free with their emotions yeah. and, and they, they don't mind showing them. Whereas Caucasian folks, we're a little bit more reserved yeah, and tight. You know, we're tight about it. Yeah. And so uh, I, I saw that happen a lot in my life later and it made every sense in the world. But what Mike was really telling me was find the person, that, you know, look for the lady in the red dress. She's in your audience, even if she's not black. Even if she's not wearing a bright red dress, she's there somewhere. Find that person. And that's who you perform for. Even if you can't get them on stage, perform for that person. You know, they talk to you. I've seen on your videos, there's one person that just wants to banter with you. Yeah. And, and I like it even when it's a kid and the parents are going, don't talk that way. Don't, don't be, don't be, you're being rude. Don't. And I'm going, no, I'm working hard for this. Yeah. Like, hey, this is going to be a great show because of your kid. Yeah. <laughs> I always do the black sponge balls for the bike. Ron, my, Ron Conley told me once that he that uh, he went up to uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. They asked, they asked him to come up and compete in a magic competition, and they um, and they found out that Ron did say, "I don't really do competitions," but they said, "Well, we need some fun." So it turned out that the judges, the way they were doing this close-up competition, they had a room like this in the lobby. And they put people, key people, judges, scattered throughout the room. 
And the deal was you had to come in and perform four effects at four different tables. And there was a judge at each one. One was like a mayor's assistant. There was a, a lady who was a, a news anchor or a, a weather girl at a TV station. There was a guy who was editor of the newspaper and some radio personality. I think they were them. But they were lay people. And so Ron said, okay, I'll go up there as long as you put, my, you put me on first. So that it, I can just do anything. And then if anybody does what I did later, then they're just copying me. <laughs> and uh, he did it for another reason, though, because he thought, these aren't magicians I'm trying to impress. These are lay people. And this is what we do in the shop at Ripley's every day. So he walked down with four push items for, for pitching. He, he did the Svengali deck. He did a spinch ball. He did a hot rod. And I think he did nickels to dimes. And we have these really tight, nicely woven interactive routines. And um, I, I can still I can do I can still do the ball, steel ball and tube thing and make you want it right. <laughs> because I do different things. In it. So, uh, so anyway, Ron gets in there and he looks and the and the weather girl is an African-American woman in a cute little red dress. <coughs> and so, you know, who's going to see the sponge balls. So he went right up to her table first. Right. And she set the tone for the rest of the night. He walked up and he says, here, let's just have some fun. She's never seen this. So he goes over and the balls jump into her hand and everything she screams at, at the end, the balls all vanish. And her reactions were so emotional and, and enthusiastic that you could hear it all through the lobby. Right. And he went to the next thing and everybody was like, I can't wait for that guy to get here. So everybody loved him. And at the end he won, he won the competition. Oh, other guys saw that and they came out to do the sponge balls too, but it was too late. The moment was gone. Right. Ron got there first. He said later, when they give him, they give him a, an award, and um, it was presented to him by Del Rey. Okay. That the ring in Columbia was called the Del Rey Ring, in his honor. And so Del Rey lived nearby, and so he was presenting the awards. And Ron said that when he went up on stage, the, um, the uh, Del Rey, uh, he, they announced him. He come out to accept the award. And he goes, "Congratulations!" And Ron said, "You know why I won, don't you, Del?" And he says, why? And he goes, because I did the sponge balls to the black lady in the red dress. <laughs> and he goes, that's the name of the game, son. They had a little quiet conversation awesome. up there while all the applause was going on the auditorium. That's so funny. That's, so that's getting, back to, getting, back to, um, um, getting back to scripting, though, since you're, you're interested in that, I, um, I look at when I look at the tricks, particularly when I, I started buying tricks and looking at them <clears throat> and looking at the effect, put my, not what the guy is saying, but look at the effect. What's the effect? I'm going to, I'm going to have you select, um, can I give you an example? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just going to pull these cards out here. I just got a deck of cards. Um, just regular cards, too, by the way. All right. Um, can, um, let's do this. Uh, have you ever had a moment, a premonition moment in your youth? Uh, what I mean by premonition moment is um, uh, we, we, we talk about ESP and, and telepathy and telekinesis, but a lot of us, a lot of people don't know even what that is. If you ask them to define it, they're, they're having a hard time. Telepathy, I'll just tell you, is the transference of thought from one person to another. Um, uh, telekinesis is the ability to move an object by just using the power of the mind alone, not my finger. 
So, um, <clears throat> but a lot of people have had experiences with it, even though they don't recognize it at the time. Uh, particularly like premonitions. Have you ever been thinking about an old friend that lives far away and they've been on your mind all day and then so you reach for the phone to call them, but the moment you reach for it to pick it up, the phone rings and it's them calling you. Now, when you ask this, every adult in the room is nodding their head. So I go, well, then you guys have experienced what I call premonition because it goes beyond just mere coincidence. If, if, if you're my friend, Jason, and I'm thinking of you and you're thinking of me, well, we're friends. We do that. So it's no surprise. But when we meet a couple of months later and, and we mention that to each other, hey, I was thinking of you back there on the first part of the year. Here it is summertime. Yeah, I remember thinking about you like that. day. Oh, 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 oh. We should have called each other, you know. But when, when both of you act upon it and call each other at the same moment, you're going way beyond coincidence, right? Well, I, I want to recreate a moment like that since some of you don't know what it feels like. Or we can do it, and we can do it with cards. Um, if, you, if you just roll with this a little bit, um, if you would, um, first off, I'm just not do anything with these. Uh, I need you to just touch the back of a card you feel good about. That's important. You don't have to pull it out, but we'll just lay it right here, okay? We're not going to look at it. We're not going to do anything like that. We're just leaving it here. Now, here's what I'm going to have. You, I normally pick other people. This is multiple people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you look at a card, um, if you would, just down in the deck. I'm going to turn away. Remember that. Yep. And I'm going to have you look at one, too. I'm going to go further down like this and have you look at one, too, Joshua. Have you got it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, I'm going to put these down. I haven't seen any of the cards at all. You, you've, got, you've got to look at one. You've got to look. Maybe you saw each other's. But I want you to think about your card. And I'm going to ask you some questions about it because I'm handling the cards, the deck. So you might, and I'm a sneaky guy. So you might think, oh, uh, you know, he, he's doing something crazy. So let's create a card that, that a hybrid card, if you will. Every card has, has three elements. It has a color, it has a value or a number, and it has a suit. True. All right, so let's create one so that we're kind of wrapping this in layers of randomness. What was the color of your card, red or black? It was a red card. A red card, okay. What was the value, the number, ace to king, of your card? Uh, it was queen. A queen, okay. So we're creating a black, you said, or red? Red, okay, we're creating a red queen, okay. It was red, was it diamond or heart? It was a diamond. Okay, a diamond. All right, so I still don't know what card you picked. I know this. I know it was a diamond, but I'm, and I know yours was a queen, but I don't know what suit. Okay, is it safe to say that neither one of you picked the red queen of diamonds? No. Okay, good. Now, before we created the hybrid card, we looked at a pair of random cards. Before we did all that, you touched the card. You said you felt good about. Mm -hmm. right? So it begs the question: Do you believe in premonition? Oh yeah. 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 Well, you should. Right. You should. Awesome. The fun part is. Place it right here, ready to go again. <laughs> yeah, and and so it works, and but it's all based on that because when I what my goal in that was to um, I wanted to make a contribution to the number of tricks you can do with a size seven stack. Right. There you go, and uh, and so um, real simple, real easy, but to lay people, this bothers them on a very deep level, right? Because they're thinking, no way, you know, they squeal a little bit. But it also takes that moment that they can all relate to. Everybody in the room says, oh, I, I've had that happen to me. And then I tell them now, because of this, somebody, when I said it, she goes, well, it's happened to me a lot. And, and, and then one lady goes, 
this is one of those moments she just blurts out. In this day and age when everybody's texting and social media stuff, I imagine it happens to people a lot more than they realize. You know, and I'm thinking, thank you. I'm going to include that tidbit of information. <laughs> I like little factoids and trying to bring it up so it makes it means something to them personally. For sure. I want to make it relevant. And I don't think you can do that with your script on the fly. I think you I think you have to give it some careful thought and try to figure out a way to work it in. So it makes sense. It doesn't sound like you're trying to fit a round peg into a square hole. You're, it, it's, you're, it, it makes logical sense and it flows. And, and, and so that's what that is. What, what's the time span? Or maybe there's not a specific one. How long do you give a piece private rehearsal before you take it out into your show to start testing it? How comfortable like I know for myself at Disney, I would probably spend about maybe two weeks mm -hmm. rehearsing at home. I would do the same thing, except I would use like brooms and vacuum cleaners and take people heads so that I could have an audience because I needed to, I move a lot yeah. in my show. So I needed that. And they're in different spots. In different spots. Yeah. I needed to feel Once in the other room a little. Yeah. yeah. You're like, if I was just of a mirror or a camera, it didn't give me the perception that I needed. I would always felt lost when I got out on stage from so how long for you do you take? Well, the scripting process itself takes a lot of trial and error. And um, particularly when you're doing things, I have a few things I do that are propolis mentalism. Mm -hmm. I have one called Finding Eeyore. Where you sent that to me. That was really good one. Yeah. Yes, that is such. Then you write, you wrote that up somewhere, yes? Okay. Yeah, I put it in MUM. Yes. And yeah. in, in the high risk. Genius, column. get it. If you're reading this book, get it. Because that is, it's a great routine. A really great routine. But but man, I screwed that up so many times before I finally got down to what to say and how to say it. Right. Plus, it does the, the thing about that routine finding your I had to justify the fact that I'm bouncing around most mathematical effects, and there's some math involved of sorts, but it's hidden. They don't they aren't aware of it. But well, they are at one point you're just asking them to you take these random numbers. Now we need to get down to one number so Add them or together or, or subtract one from the other. It's all about choices the whole time. And um, <clears throat> when, but I had to have justifications for, for introducing an invisible die and then getting the the number. Now think of this number and write it down in letters. And, and that's where the whole ADD thing, I, I have a creative, I have, and I think I always will have a creative soul, but you guys call attention deficit disorder. <laughs> And everybody goes, oh, that's a great laugh. It's a bigger laugh than I thought it would get. And then they, and then you go into this whole thing. And I've had friends of mine write back about that. They go, I love this routine because I hate mathematical effects. Because my eyes start to glaze over as soon as you say add something together. But this is fun. Yeah. And, then, and at the end, it, I also like the subtleties in there. Like um, at the end with the, the thing with coming up with a way to justify um, the answer is either Eeyore or Nemo in that thing. So how do I, how do I differentiate? I don't know who it is until the very end. And I have to ask one question that seems innocuous. And I said, is there water involved? And usually they go, no. And I go, because nine times out of, or eight times, seven times out of 10, they're going to think Eeyore. So I, I go, well, I always do picture a rain cloud hanging over of gloom, hanging over Eeyore's head. And when I say rain cloud hanging over, people start grinning. Oh. And I, go, I didn't think you'd get me. And then, um, 
other times, um, it, but there's a, there's so much trial and error in that, right. and putting it together. I screwed it up. I, and another good thing is I come from a large family. Um, my uh, my wife and I have six kids between us. Wow. Uh, I have two, and she had four when I met her and fell in love with her. And uh, so she's. Uh, we I had a lot of people to try it on one at a time. <laughs> and, uh, when I finally got the last three, gave me consistent answers. Then I would go try it with cast members backstage because I, I don't really perform outside of that much. And then I would just do it. And before I put it into a show, I, I did it in little one-on-one vignettes that I was enjoying with. The one good thing about this, when I was in Orlando performing and when I got done, they wanted me off stage within five minutes. Right. Because yeah. backstage, because somebody talking to you was not affected by impulse sales, you know, so I'm okay. I get it. But here I'm expected to do that. It's part of the, the guests. Like the fact, hey, I'm talking to a Disney cat, an entertainer, you know, and he's given me, you know, 20 minutes of his time because there's, I don't have anything else to do. So I'm sure I'll talk with you. Right. And, and so that would give me opportunity to do that one-on-one stuff. So I went through a lot of trial and error for about, a, for about three months before I finally felt like I had the script down to where it was and needed to be. I've got a couple of others because one of the things, I, there's something else I tried doing with it is uh, when I first started embracing mentalism I was a, I loved mentalism it was one of those areas I kept myself ignorant of right? and I just didn't know but I was also I didn't like mentalism perform because a lot of guys don't know how to perform it well they're, they're kind of uh, they're, well a lot of no, guys no, no. It's just a, pretentious it's Todd Robbins said almost the same <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine Todd having little patience with that kind of stuff. But, but every now and then you meet somebody who, who presents it really well, the, the, um, um, uh, Eric Mead's writing a book about him. Uh, Tim Conover. Tim Conover. I couldn't remember his last name. I was going to submit the something. I watched him perform once and it was just the most entertaining thing I'd ever seen. It was all mentalism. It blew me away. He made it exciting. He put he put tension behind it and everything. And I, I just love that. But um, and when you see that, you say this has all the potential of being excellent. But magicians, they don't know how to do it. They want to get up and pontificate. Well, I was in Africa and I came across this mummified hand. And I, I carry it in this ornate box. And <laughs> in a moment, the ring's going to fall off and tap out a real one for it. <laughs> and, and and it's because of the um, uh, new neuro linguistic programming I put into my words, and they and I go, oh, God, dude, just put me to sleep or shoot me. <laughs> but it's it's that kind of stuff. There's no relevance to it, and um, you have to. Know, I think in back, what makes mentalism hard to do well, you've got to have a believable backstory. Now. <clears throat> I live in the Sea Islands. I work in the Sea Islands. We have Gullah people around here that are heavy into voodoo and stuff. All that stuff you hear about in New Orleans and stuff, it, and it started here. And so you got all sorts of people. There's there's a book you can buy while you're here in the, in the local bookstores called Blue Roots. Um, and and it, it's called Blue Roots, the root magic of the Gullah folk. And there's a photograph of props used by one of the root doctors in, in around Buford that's Books written by Roger Pinkney, a historian that's here, and 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 it's a photo of props that he would use 
to work his magic, his root magic on his clients. And I swear to God, there's a homemade dye box in there. And they use magic props. Sure. They use anything they could do to sell it. Sure. But because of that, well, <clears throat> um, I have a conjure bag and it's got some stuff in it that was given to me by a root doctor, a woman named Miss Josephine, who had the eyes. She could look at you and, and tell you whether your wife was pregnant or not, whether it was a boy or girl, or whether it was a breach of birth or what, what season it was going to be born in. And she was rarely wrong. And, uh, and she gave me this. She used to keep it under her porch to keep the bad spirits away. It's got weird stuff in it. And I dump it out. And there's a there's a bone um, dye in there made made of bone and cough. And uh, and and there's a bone from a, a, a sea turtle. And um, and there's a rock with a hole in it. And there's a chicken foot that's been painted bright red, a rooster foot. You know that kind of stuff with feathers still touched to it. And and there's like an old coin that's all like an old. Um, a really, really worn down English penny, but you can't tell what it is. And, uh, and I said, I don't, I don't, this is stuff she gave me before she passed on. And he goes, but we're going to use some of this because I can do tricks with all that crap. <laughs> so, but now I've got a backstory that's basically I'm going to walk away bulletproof. Right. It gives us some interest, but, and it's not me, it's, it's where it comes from. So uh, that's what the root stuff does. Uh, so I can lock into it locally or I can talk about pirates. I can, I can talk about it. My uncle Otis just show me tricks and stuff, but I give it a relevance. Um, and in, in, in some of this stuff, like there's a, 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 I've been dabbling with Equivo stuff. And in one of my columns, I put one called big fish and the, and the story about big fish. I, I, I look at, I look at children and uh, people say, don't do, you can't really do mentalism to children. And I, and I go, want to bet? <laughs> and they like it. But you got to keep it to where they can understand it. And if, <clears throat> like, I have a, your, um, you know, the, the, the trick, uh, mental epic. Yeah. You know, a lot of guys say, I stay with the trick. Trick sucks. Why? Well, you have them think of a number from one to a million. Name any city in the world. Here, pick a card. That's your last one. The, the, the last thing is a 52 choice. And I go, well, that doesn't make the trick suck. That makes your choices suck. <laughs> And, yes. and so, it, and so what I did was I came up with something. I still wanted to cart, force the card at the end. So what I did is I came up with a presentation that justified it. I said, I'm going to ask you three questions. Each one's going to become twice as challenging as the one before. And, and I, and I, and I said, for example, um, pretend I just gave you this, in, this die, it's an invisible die, roll it on the table. Uh, and they do. And, I, and you go, and I write something down on a paper and I go, what number did you roll? Five. Five. Okay. And I turn it over and it says four because most people say four. Good with the program. So, but he says four and I go, see, this proves that, that we're not on the same wavelength. I'm going to have to try harder. So let's choose the number. Let's, let's go a little harder. Think of a number from, um, you go, i tell you what, let's, you, that, that was six choices. Let's double that. In fact, let's go a little further. Instead of giving you a dozen, I'll give you a baker's dozen. Think of a number from one to 13. And now they, but don't tell me. And so they, they do it. And I write something down and say, okay, I'm committed. And I write your name and I drop it in the glass. And then, uh, and then I go, and then we, we find out what it is. The next, you point to somebody and, uh, and I go, now he had 13 choices. 13 and 13 is 26. Twice as hard. Give me a letter of the alphabet. Think of one. And then he does that. And then 26 and 26 is 52. 
I'm justified. Now the cards aren't the weak thing. They're the toughest thing. You see? And if I do this with children, every kid can give me a number. I, a four-year-old can give me a number from one to 13. A three-year-old can give me a letter of the alphabet. They've been singing. Can you sing the ABCs? Yeah. And, and so it justifies it. And they're in, they're on board. And then the card thing, I, I usually just have them pull the card out and then, uh, but that's how that works. You see, it, but my it, everything's justified in it. So, I think that kind of stuff is critical to to um, giving it relevance and everything. And um, I like what Tim did and uh, Tim um, Conover making it exciting. So when I got into magic and mental or mentalism and told people I wanted to try to include it because I wanted to come up with another show I could do at Disney that was different and. Um, a lot of professional mentalists told me, whatever you do, don't use playing cards when you do mentalism. And I said, why? Okay, but why? And they said, because when audiences see playing cards, they automatically think magic trick. And I remember looking at one guy and I said, I don't know if I buy that or not. And he goes, oh, it happens. It was happens. Chuck Hickok said it. <laughs> and he said, and I said, I don't know if I believe that. He goes, well, I'm telling you from experience, it's true. But I said, but my experience, an audience doesn't assume anything about a deck of cards until you do something with it. You know, if I, if I shuffle, if I pharaoh it and I do a civil cut, yeah, they're going to think card tricks. But if I, but when I do card tricks, when I, when I'm at Disney, I can, I can do all that crap, but I overhand shuffle the deck and I'm dropping cards all the time. I'm an absolute klutz with a deck of cards in front of my my audience, my friend of my guests. So, <clears throat> man, my throat shot. So Let's anyway, go for water. Uh, no, I got some in here. It's it's the the weather. Anyway, um, so I didn't buy it. I just I just thought no. So I went out and I created this this um, mentalism show called the Mental World of Blue, and uh, and it was a one hour mentalism show done with nothing but playing cards and then i sold it to disney and that was so successful i've done it four more times i'm now in my fifth incarnation of the show and every time i retire one of those acts they become the act series books one of them is called hoodwinkings i call the next one predictabilities and no act license and that's what they did that's great and uh, yeah it's steve steve cohen is he on your list uh you know i he's he's on he's, he's on the list in I, uh, like on the wish list. in the wish list side of things. Yeah. And the way that it's been going is Josh started this whole process literally by just phoning. Actually, Facebook, right? Yeah, I, yeah. I, I Facebooked. Facebooked. I was like the third I, I, guy on the list, I think. And you were, you were, and I was like, I need to get my cares. I'm like, we need to try and get my cares. No, because I, I originally had, um, I had, we had thought of the idea, and then I had dropped it. I was like, I don't know if it's going to work. And then about a year later, after Jay had moved, um, I was at a bar. And I'm saying in, and I'm, I'm talking to a friend. He's like, "You, what happened that book you're writing?" I was like, "I don't." You know, you what? went through a phase where you were dropping out of it. Oh yeah, I, I remember reading that stuff and going, "What yeah. a shame!" It was. It wasn't. Even, he called me it. and said he had an audition opportunity at Disney, and I and I called him and I said, or we talked to him. Yeah. I said, "Call me. I got some ideas, but it's too long to write here." And we talked about the character thing, and I said, "If you're going to go audition." have a character role yeah i you know it the the audition was too uh it was too soon i didn't prepare i didn't think it went well my wife says it went well but i'm you know you're i'm your worst critic so 
Um, you're particularly harsh critic. I'm very harsh on myself. Well, that's my own Everybody is. And I was an actor, so it's like I was even worse on myself. Um, so I, I messaged Anastasia Sen, who's um, Anastasia Sen. I was him, sorry, Anastasia Sen, who's Amazing Jonathan's wife. And because I couldn't get in touch with him and asked her, and she said yes. So I flew out there, and then he got me Matt King, and I had already gotten Rudy Colby. And then I just started messaging people, going, yes, "Hey, do you mind some guys that are working it hard?" Yeah, yeah. Uh, we have um, we got Tom Frank, Tom Frank, we have like Tom. Uh, John Eakin, yeah, um, who was the Magic Masters guy up in um, Baltimore, maybe. Maybe that's where he's from. I can't remember somewhere. Somewhere in Maryland. Somewhere up I'm there. I'm surprised you haven't gotten John. You want me to I, talk to him? Yeah, I mean, if if, if you wouldn't mind, yeah. yeah that's I, basically how this whole thing is going. I had like it, I sent him a message on Facebook. Got his phone number in my car. It just, it's yeah. I messaged him on Facebook because it's you you had mentioned him when when we all started. You and I then then you started your thing at mm-hmm. Disney about the same time I did. Right. That's when Steve did. He started his thing. He was working his uh, chamber magic show out of a friend's apartment in New York. Right. About the same time we started. That's insane. Look at him now. And then he went to the National Arts Club, and then he went to Waldorf. I messaged Steve early on. We both did. Well, not in this process. Oh, not in this process. When I was performing back when I first got Disney, and I was like, okay, this starting to turn into something. I would like to do what you're doing because I'm hearing Steve Cohen and he's doing these shows and he's doing like, and we've got nice hotels in Florida too. Like we have a Ritz I want to do what you're doing. And I messaged him and I think that he was very much in still in his workshop phase. Cause he was just, I wouldn't say dismissive, but he was very protective of the information that he got. I was like, if he uh, put me, in books, anything, you know? he would, um, he brought that up to me. After we got away, he called me out of the blue and I'm following it, but I don't feel like I don't, I don't want to bug people. I think I'm too busy trying to make a living. (laughs) And, uh, but he called me up and he goes, Hey, this is Steve Cohen. I got your number from, I can't remember who. And, uh, I said, man, I'm a huge fan, uh, because I, I follow what you do and everything else. And I think you started doing it about the same time I started working with Disney. And he says, yeah, I want to talk to you about that. You know, and he goes, how, how long have you been doing it? And I want you to, I want to invite you up to come up sometime and watch the show. And I said, man, I am never in New York. <laughs> <laughs> so your money's safe for a good long while. Man. But, uh, but if you guys ever come down here, man, I'll, I'll put you guys up at the resort or something if I have to. And so, but we've talked back and forth and he told me, he goes, you ever get people that call and ask How'd you get this gig at the hotel? I want to do that too. I tell him, yeah. And he goes, what do you, what do you tell them? And I tell him, I, I said, usually when I tell him that um, I, I'm doing this thing at the hotel, but when I, I'm doing it through Disney. And when I decided I wanted to work for Disney early on as a kid, I feel like I went and spent 30 years getting ready. And then I said, it wasn't just something that happened overnight. Right. And, um, so when I had that audition opportunity come up, even though I got short notice, I had ideas about what I wanted. And I told you about this on the phone. And, and he says, what he does is he tells these guys, he says, the first thing I did was, first off, you have to have an act. But he said, and then uh, once you did that, I hired a publicist. And he said, and then I didn't get paid for the first two years. No money at all. I made money, but it was all to pay the publicist. I paid my publicist. 
but now it's paid off. And now if I make an announcement or something, I send, I send out a press release. It doesn't get thrown in at the trash can. They know this is newsworthy. I've been on the cover of magazines and blah, blah, blah. So it becomes self-perpetuating. But he says he gets this a lot from people that just expect him to spill the beans right? and, and, and say, what's the magic formula? And he said, a lot of sweat and risk and, and having a, a wife and a solid marriage. And it has nothing to do with how many tricks you know or anything. It has to do with how's the rest of your life? What's that foundation like? <clears throat> when, I, when I went to Orlando, when I, when I did that, I walked in with a banjo in a case and I leaned it against the wall. And Mike Corcus said, we, uh, I think you're in the wrong room. And I said, you're, you're, I remember him being off to the side. I said, you're auditioning magicians today, right? And he goes, yeah, this is for magicians, not musicians. I said, okay, I'm in the right place. <laughs> so he goes, well, what's with the banjo case? I said this, oh, uh, people, uh, I, everywhere I go, people go, what do you do for a living? I say, I'm a magician. And they go, really? What instrument do you play? Now it's an old joke. And then I tag it by going, so I haul this around because people seem to ex- ex- they seem to expect it, and uh, and he goes. He looks at Raquel Comzak and he goes, and Raquel's laughing, and she goes, "You walked into it," and I'm thinking, "Great, I haven't even started, and I've got him laughing." So he that was one of those spur of the moment things. I didn't know the conversation was going to go on, but I but I milked it. So I did the whole thing, and after eight minutes, he goes, "Well, you still got a few minutes left. What do you want to do?" Do you have anything else you want to know or talk to us about? I said, yeah, if you give me a minute, I want to talk to you about what's in that case. And then Mike goes, you mean you really have a banjo in there? <laughs> so not only did I bait the hook, man, I hooked that fish good, right? I got him in the basket. <laughs> and so he goes, and I said, you, you really think I haul around an empty banjo case? Because when you see a banjo case, you know what's in it. You know? And uh, so he, uh, anyway, so. I got talking to them about the other things. I said, I, w- I want to tell you that I, I have more than one interest in entertainment. I am a magician, but I also like telling stories and playing music. And I play a handful of instruments. And um, if you give me a chance, I'd like to maybe tell you a story, play you a tune. And in the interest that if you choose me, I think I can give you more bang for your entertainment buck. And they said, sure. So I played a song called The Devil and the Farmer's Wife, which is a really funny song. Um, and every, every verse has the word hell in it somewhere, but it's funny. It's funny all the way through, you know, and, uh, and at the end they're laughing, clapping along and they go, um, because I thought I would tell them a story while I played a song. Cause I didn't know how much time they were going to give me for all I knew. They were saying, dude, no, I'm, I'm going home in three minutes, you know, but they go, no, that's really good. Hold on. We want to bring somebody else in. And they bring in the guy who's in charge of all the music. So he listens to me play it again. And, and then another guy and another guy. And, and they keep parading people through and talking about stuff. At one point, though, and this is what I told you on the phone. I remember telling you, they said, how do you see yourself fitting in with us here at Disney? And I'd been thinking about that on that long drive down. There. Remember, I was in Myrtle Beach. That was an eight-hour drive for me. So <clears throat> I am. Um, and I've been thinking about it. So I said, well... If you don't have me working at the Rosen Crown Pub, I said, put me in a Jefferson shirt, set me on a hay bale in Liberty Square. Let me play my penny whistle and tell stories about that mix history with tall tales. You know, I can talk about Mike Fink and Paul Bunyan and, you know, John Henry and all those guys. 
some Americana stuff. In fact, put me in that same Jefferson shirt on a packing crate outside of the American Experience Pavilion in Epcot and let me play my fiddle and draw people there to that. Put me on my banjo. Let me hold my banjo and put me on that paddle wheel boat going around Tom Sawyer Island. In fact, put me on Tom Sawyer Island. You guys need something on Tom Sawyer <laughs> And then, And I said, or put me in the hoop to do review. I'll plug right in. And before I got halfway through that litany, they were going. And I learned at that moment, Disney's like everybody else. Everybody loves it when somebody else does their thinking for them. And that, and that, But the point is, I had these character ideas where they could see that happening. And, and I knew at that moment they started nodding. I didn't know if I got the thing at Epcot or not, but I was walking away with a contract. And I was so confident about it that when I got home from that visit, that, that was in September, um, I, I, I looked ahead and I gave away all of my holiday shows around Christmas and the ones I had booked up through January, February, March already. And the following year, I gave them away to all locals because I thought... I'm going to be busy at Disney. I think we're going to be moving. I told my wife we'll be moving. And I think it'll be sometime in, in November. And um, um, Thanksgiving Day, they um, brought me down to, uh, they brought me down here. Nice. And they had me re-audition here. Okay. And they liked me and they gave me the contract. Right. And then they, <clears throat> I got the contract. So let's come back here the following week on, on Wednesday. But they had me go down to uh Orlando and perform at Animal Kingdom. I, I did a streetmosphere act um, called the Amazing Finger Picking, Finger Flicking Music of Magic Campfire Extravaganza. <laughs> I made up the title, but it was, Say that but it was a. I tell people it was a. It was a twenty-three um, minute show, but after I told them the title, it was only a fourteen-minute show. So I kind of whittled away at that sucker right from the start. I, I, had, I would. I was on a little stage outside the festival of Lion King Theater. Okay, yeah. yeah. And then I, I would. I would say. I would announce the show, and then, um, and then I'd say, you know, all the way from the beautiful Sea Islands of South Carolina, because I was still performing as me. I'd say, they thought I was the host, and they go, I'd say, please put your hands together and give a huge round of applause to your entertainer this afternoon, Mister Mick Ayers, and I'd point, and everybody in the audience would go. And I would jump off the stage, run around the back, past a guy in a wheelchair, and I go, "Excuse me, sir. Excuse me, sir. Show on a budget move, man. Come on." And I jump back up on the stage, come right through the middle of the crowd, and they'd all be laughing. And, and that was my opener. Yeah, it's great. Stupid stuff. It's fun, fun, but you get away. Oh, yeah. It's having a blast. Did you learn? That's the beautiful thing about having those opportunities. Is you get to learn really how to play with people and have fun. But do it in the context of a show with a time frame that you have to do it in. I thought, I thought Terry Ward's CD was named so well, The Art of Play. Yeah. Because I thought he would know. That guy is You would know. I would know. The guy. Because we're on this all the time. You would know if you did it. Yeah. I, I'm surprised you didn't nail it with that background of theater. I just, I don't think I was comfortable with the uh, choices of effects that I chose. I didn't, I didn't do what I was comfortable doing. I chose something that I thought they would like. And I, I should have, I tried doing some stage things that I hadn't worked out and I should have just stuck with the close-up magic that I had been doing. I told you, do the years. stuff you can do in your show. And I sat there and I didn't. They, they never listen. Come up to me and go, I'm going to be in a contest next week. Do you think I should, I just bought three tricks to do in it. And I'm going, God. Why? <laughs> and you know, and, and I think about it, like I, I look, I look back on it and I'm kind of glad I didn't get it. Because I knew that I would, I would get it. I would have fun, and then 
But I'm going to tell you. I might not have fun I'm because tell I you stopped doing friend. it for so long because it became a job. And even when I left the audition, I went, I'm kind of glad that didn't go well. But think about I it now. It All these interviews you've done and listening to guys around here, think how better prepared you are to walk oh, in. Oh, yeah. You know? the, this was kind of the idea of doing it because, you know, Jay's always like, oh, I don't want to perform anymore. And I, I'm doing it because <laughs> I lost I lost interest. I, it, it became working at a restaurant and doing the close-up magic for 10 years, three nights, you know, I would do it three nights a week, every week. People would hire me and I had fun. And then one day I showed up, someone was paying me a great amount of money. And I went, I have to do magic. Like these people are are making me do it. It sounds like David Williamson's story. Remember David Williamson? He tells about how he was, he was table hopping at some dinner banquet thing. There was going to be a movie there and people come in and eat dinner. And they really came from the movie. They came for a little bit for the food. The entertainment was okie doke, but they really came for the film. But he was walking around this thing and he said, he realized nobody shit what he was doing. So he said, one day I just snapped. And he said, I bar, I said, I said, Hey lady, uh, pick a card. And he has and assign it. And he goes, I'm going to find your card. And he goes, no, that's not, your card. that's not your damn card either. It's not your damn card. No, it's not. And he's doing things. He goes, it's gotta be here somewhere. Maybe it's in you. And he picks a kid up and he turns him upside down and starts shaking him. Kids laughing, parents looking shocked. And he goes, maybe it's in your shoe. And he takes, maybe it's in your shoe. And he crawls under the table and he takes the lady's shoe off. And he's going, I can't find that card. Where's that card? Now he's making a noise. He just snapped. <laughs> and people are going, what the hell's wrong with this guy? But I'm going to watch. This is more interesting than the movie now. <laughs> and he's running around asking people. He's opening up purses at other tables. And we're, we got to find her card. The card trick will suck. I don't find her <laughs> card. And he runs around. And he's now he's at the front. He's nowhere near the table. And he finally palms it out of his pocket. And he finds it in the back. Oh, this kid had it right in his underwear. Anybody? You want to hold it? <laughs> Nothing. And everybody applauded. And he, and he found his character in that moment. Where he just and I've never seen anybody that can that can handle children like that and get away with it, and, get away with it. and not have the dead because I've, I've seen him on stage pick up kids. And yeah, and the, the kids <laughs> laughing his ass off. And I did. If I did that, the dad would come up and belt me right in the mouth. That's you know? real. Like watching a guy like David Williamson is a great study for not taking someone's act, their jokes, their material, and thinking that you're going to be able to do it yourself because you aren't that person. You don't have whatever experience they've had coming into this moment to make it work for them. Like, I could pull off a Southern gentleman. I could pull off an English guy. (laughs) That worked for me. That was like some inner thing for me. But, yeah, it's like watching a guy like David do it Nobody else can do that. Nobody else can pick up. Well, Harry Anderson was the same way. I thought the most genius thing he ever did was marketing his handcuffs. Those cuffs with the light. All these guys buying them and nobody could do that act. Because you have to have Harry's character or else you're manhandling some guy's girlfriend on stage. And if you don't do that just right, man, Bubba, the 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 boyfriend is going to come up there and crack a beer bottle over your head. And these guys bought this and they couldn't pull it off without completely imitating Harry Anderson. And I thought... 25 bucks in your pocket and that's that's like that's like uh, Tom Tom Mulliga he wouldn't tell anybody for the longest time where the damn cigarettes and napkins went because he, he did that switch so yeah. well he wouldn't tell anybody and then one day he started telling everybody do you know where he was 
He was in the back of my store doing a lecture when he finally let the cat out of the bag. Some kid asked him, this fat 13-year-old kid with dark green shorts and a light lime green shirt, T-shirt, <laughs> overweight kid who's he's just socially inept. Dad might buy him anything because they felt sorry for him, but he liked magic. I mean, they'd buy him anything. And Tom looked at him and goes, he looked at the lime green shirt and the dark green shorts and he goes, you look like a walking golf course kid. <laughs> and the, But the kid says, okay, he just took it in stride. But at one point he does everything and he says, Tom, Mr. Mr. Mullica. And he says real politely, that, that thing you did with the cigarettes and the napkins, where do they go? Are, are you going to teach that too? And he goes, and you see him go, yeah, what the hell? Because when he asked me and some other guys, no, kid, you don't ask Tom that. Because Tom's made it clear he's not telling anybody. That. But Tom says, yeah, what the hell? So he explains the whole thing. And then one, and then the kid asks the golden question. He goes, when you throw the cigarettes in your mouth, do you ever get burned? And he goes, every time. <laughs> and therein meant that no one, even that they knew the secret, would ever do that effect. Because magicians are not going to, they're not that dedicated. No, I, I, I'm on it handed to him in a silver platter. Yeah, I'm a smoker. I'm not chucking that thing in my mouth. Well, it comes down to work and it comes down to how much you want to sacrifice. That's what Steve Cohen will tell you. That's what Todd Robbins has got to be. That's what all these guys have told you. It didn't come. It wasn't handed to us. You went through so much crap to be able to do that. And it paid off. You're the one who walked out of that room with that contract. No one else did. But I got this one out of it, and I'm so glad it worked out because right. I'm still here 16 years later, and I've got this I've got this reputation all not with the magicians they don't know me from Adam, but I've got a following all over the planet. Yeah, and um, it's an amazing feeling to have to know that for people to come back and see you and remember you year after year after well, year. Not so. I don't want to I hate talking about myself because it sounds like I'm boasting no. or bragging. But when they come up to me and they go it blows me away when they go, um, you're the reason we come back every year. We love this resort. We love the dog, but you're the reason we come back every year. And I don't know what to say to it, Jason. I just go, Yeah. Thank you. Really. Yeah, you just made my day, my <laughs> life, my week, my month, my year. <laughs> because I want to I want to be able to um so understanding and like you said I think when you realize when you know what your character is and how your character fits within an experience that either you're trying to create or someone else has created and you're fitting into that experience it gives you such clarity of being able to communicate that with your audiences and they pick up on that they know there's there's a continuity to it. I don't know. There's kismet. I don't know how else to put it, but it's they're in like good hands. They're in good hands and they want that each and every time. And every time they come back, they know, like we would have people come, you know, to the, to the bar, to Rose and Crown. And they wouldn't go into the bar if I wasn't performing or if Pam, the hat lady wasn't playing piano. They didn't want to be in there. I'm like, Oh no, this place is just a bar. It's, just, it's nothing. It's nothing here. But when they're here, then it's a party and then it's an experience and then it's a good time or at the boardwalk when people would come like you're in the middle of Walt Disney World and people are telling you this is your show your little 20 minute show is the reason why they're there because you connected at some point at some point on an emotional level you connected with them and even if you didn't know it at the time or they'll, they'll some kid will start talking to you and 
and he just won't be quiet. And then the parents come up later and go, he's autistic. He doesn't talk to anybody. Yeah. And he won't shut up around you. Yeah. You just made our whole vacation. Mom's crying. And I don't know what I did, but it's happened. (laughs) You know, it happens a lot. I mean, well, a lot, but you know what I mean? A couple of times. Yeah. More, uh, more to us than to the average human being. But that's, the, yeah, right. because of the number of times we're actually on stage. Yeah, there is that part of me when I went to a convention once and I came, I, I'm walking through the lobby and there's this, two, this guy, I don't know who he was. He was some guy, he was holding court, you know, what I perform all the time. I, I do I do 258 shows a year on average, <laughs> close to a show a, year, a day, you know, so many shows a week. And everybody's going, wow, that's great. And I'm going, Dude, I lose count after 1,300 a year, and I've been doing it for six years. I don't even, I don't say nothing, but I'm just going, wow, okay. But magicians, they, magicians pontificate. It's, it, and we, I think we've talked about this before, but it is staggering, comparatively speaking, the amount of shows that you get to do in a resort like Disney. Mm-hmm. Like where I was, where you are, Terry Ward, it's the amazing it is almost mind-boggling the amount of shows that we do like you were saying earlier the amount of time it takes to get tight is so fast and you stay at that really high level and it just keeps getting better and better and better as long as you're paying attention and still learning and still tweaking and i imagine you're that way too you're constantly like I'm never finding happy. yeah you're always finding a new there's got to be a better way a bigger laugh a I don't, I don't think I'm that good. <laughs> I really don't. I, I think I'm, I, I just feel like if I ever did go to a convention, they asked me to perform, that nobody ever goes, so what? Yeah, Man, because I think, they, I don't know if they would get it. Right. You know, whereas I'm not, because I'm not performing for guests in this environment where I'm really comfortable. Right. You know, I own this area kind of thing. I'm, I'm in my comfort zones. But magicians, I, you know, the, there's the curmudgeons in the front row, you know, entertain me, trick boy. Yeah. And I'm, I went. I did. I did a, a close-up show at Scam one year. Okay. They asked me to do the close-up show. Elaine New and me and Eugene Berger and Chris Free and a guy named David um, Chandler. There five of us. I was the first guy, <clears throat> and I went out and there's all the curmudgeons in the front row, sitting there just cross-legged, <laughs> and older guys. And I'm just thinking, no. So I said before we start. <laughs> Before I start my time, I said, how many here are, is there anybody here that does not do magic? Like I'm talking about like the girlfriends of magicians, moms, sisters, brothers, anybody got dragged here against their will. And and they, and there's, there was a handful. And I said, can I get the people that just raised their hands? Can I get you guys to come down front for a moment and join me? I want to conduct an experiment. And so they think it's part of the show. They come down. I need some chairs. I give them some. And I sit them up right in front of that row of guys. So now they were in the second row. I need all of you guys to sit here. And they did. And I said, my experiment is, I want to perform for real people. <laughs> and the guys behind you aren't real. Every one of them are thinking, um, they're trying to catch me if they can. I want. I don't. I don't. I'm not used to performing for that. Would you please indulge me and the other performers and just sit here and have fun with us? And they went. Yeah, now they got the best seat in the house, right? Because <laughs> the curmudgeons hog the seats and everything. Right. And so, and they and uh, they go, okay. And they gave the greatest reactions the whole time. Yeah, uh, I, I, I'm not a fan. Eugene Berger said, I don't know where you came up with that, but thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. I can do Eugene Berger. <laughs> we did. That's so great. Yeah, I can never perform for magicians. I just, 
they don't enjoy it. <laughs> I don't really, I don't even like it at the local club. But um, I, w- I want to tell you that you, you keep asking about the the, the, the um, scripting thing uh, when we talked about character development and all. In that column I write at the high road, that's my emphasis is trying to let people know this is work, and I, I don't want to pull punches, and I want to put things in there that I wish people had told me when I was starting. Mike, I didn't even want to put tricks in there, but Mike closed it and has to be tricks in there. Okay. But so I put in there things that support the theory or the essay part. I think I, I try to anyway, but and most I keep trying to put examples of, of scripting in there. One of my favorites is, is an Equivo thing I'm doing called, um, I call it Big Fish. And I, and I tell a story in the beginning and I do it with a kid and uh, it's an Equivo thing. And, um, <clears throat> I tell him that we, we, had, we are out on Broad Creek. Broad Creek runs right through the middle of Hilton Head Island. And if you look at a map of Hilton Head Island, it looks like a running shoe. And Broad Creek is the shoelace. It's got a point. There's the, the, the southern tip is the toe. The heel is the northern tip. Uh, the, the shoelace is Broad Creek. And since the opening of the shoe faces the mainland, we'd like to say the sole of Hilton Head rests against the ocean. That should be on a T-shirt. So... Um, but we like to fish in Broad Creek and my uncle Otis and I get, he gets combative. Uh, he gets pretty, um, what's the word? Um, um, he, he, he's, he, he wants to rise to the challenge. And so, um, we, I remember a couple of, uh, when I was really young one day, I went out fishing with him and, and, uh, we didn't have a very good day of fishing. He caught a, he just caught a one pound bottom feeding creek fish that the locals around here call a, a bottom feeding creek fish. <laughs> and I said, and I just snagged my line on some bottom trash or log or something. That was it. But we get back to the dock and my aunt Tilly came out, my uncle's wife and, and wanted to know what, maybe he brought some fish home. She can cook up for supper. And I said, well, boys, how was the fishing? And my uncle, he yells out, I caught a 42 pound whopper. And, and I look at him kind of wide eyed, you know, and I, and, um, and then she looks at me and goes, uh, well, Blue, what, what kind of what kind of fish did you catch? And I'm still looking at my uncle in amazement because I can't stand the way some people bend the truth. So <clears throat> I didn't lie. And I said, I didn't catch nothing, Aunt Tilly. I just snagged my line on some bottom trash. But I pulled it up and it was a, it was a lantern, an old lantern covered in barnacles from the Titanic. <laughs> and it was still lit. <laughs> And my Uncle Otis just looked at me out of the corner of his eye and said, all right, Blue, I'll shave 41 pounds off that fish I caught if you'll at least blow out that land. <laughs> so I get a chuckle and I say, do you like fishing? And the kids go, yeah. And I said, well, let's, let's imagine you're a young boy going fishing. And by this time, I said, I've had a thought about you. And I write something down and I fold it. What's your name? He tells me. I write it down. And uh, one of those incongruous things mentalists do. I'm going to read your thought, but I can't figure out your name. <laughs> so, and then I take them on this imaginary journey out on the ocean, feel the rocking of the boat, the sun's warm on the back of the neck, the reflection of the water sparkles in your eyes. There's a breeze. You got your line in the water and we baited it kind of like this piece of paper. looks like bread on water. That's a way to attract fish. But we're not just going after small fish guppies that go after that. We're going after, we're going after something big and worth bragging about. So you feel something on your hook. Uh, and, and it pulls and you pull back and it pulls harder and it pulls back. You brace your feet and you, you feel this and the kid's going, yeah, 
you know, you put, you create this picture. Right. And then finally it, you're fighting this thing and it's making it more and more tired. And, and, uh, and then he, uh, and then I said, and then you, you, uh, you get it back up and you get it to the boat. I reach over the net to pull up. What kind of fish have we got? And eight times out of 10, the kids, kid goes a shark because I'm, because I'm planting ideas. Something sunk its teeth into those, into that bait. And now you're going to have something to brag about when you get back home, mount it up, put it on your wall. And your friends go, holy cow, you caught that. You know, so what is it? Nine times, 80 times out of 10, they say shark. And that's what's written on the paper. But if they go, um, a whale or a dolphin, you know, uh, 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 you know, whatever, let's say they said, uh, oh, uh, let's say a, uh, Silver tip often barracuda. No, they, they, they go. Let's say they go a dolphin. They never say barracuda. I've never had a barracuda, but they say a dolphin and a and a sea turtle. And a, but eventually they say shark. So let's say I get those three, and then I say, okay, we got we got three massive, impressive fish you've caught. But um, this is a catch and release program, so pick up any two. Well, psychologically, if the kid's in his imagination, nobody wants to hold a shark, right? So he picks up the sea turtle and the dolphin. And I go, okay, release them back. Which one's going into the cooler? The, the shark and that and their matches up. It, it works every time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but I get to tell this little cornball tall tale and then take this kid on an imaginary journey. And all I did was write something down. Right. And that's, that's blue. I work out of my pockets and I'm still like that. My, my friends that are my age have whole wings of their house devoted all the crap they've bought from Mac magic and Abbott's and tannins over the years, all the prop stuff, everything I own will still fit in a shoebox. And, and, and even that's too much. <laughs> well, I got the mentalism show I can do just with a deck of cards that's awesome. and, and set it up. I, I start off with a stack, but I kill it you know, really quick. Hey, yeah, awesome. Terry, Terry Ward's yeah. Yeah, can make a, work for an hour and it's brilliant <laughs> yeah my friend um, uh, Steve Beam is, I'm a, I'm a, I write I help him write his books I'm, I'm one of his humor editors and editors <laughs> there's about five of us uh, Raj, uh, Raj Madoff um, Doug Canning um, Marty Kane who lives down in your neck of the woods He's a, he's a, Marty's funnier and crappy. He's a psychiatrist, okay. and he practices. He says, "I'm I'm." He goes, "My name is Marty Kane. I'm a psychiatrist with a practice in Orlando." So some of my clients, several of my clients, work for Disney. I'm pretty sure at least one of them is Goofy. <laughs> <laughs> Just you know that kind of crap. <laughs> but uh, but none of us have ever met, but we all know each other. We've all we all know Steve, right. and he uses us. So he's got input coming from all over. When he writes his books, like his semi-automatic books, it's frustrating because we've agreed not to talk about any of the jokes or the humor right. until the book is published. But when we're all going at it hot and heavy, every day I wake up and there's all these magician jokes and they're all through and I'm cracking up and I can't breathe a word of them to any guy around here. <laughs> and then finally they show up. That's awesome. So, is there anything else you need to know from me? Uh, I think that was great. I mean, it's really, it's really just a conversation. So, to get your perspective, yeah, I mean, bringing a character to life. So, every, scripting everything, everything you just about, spoke about fits perfectly. <laughs> your stories, everything to me, is has become real. I tell them if I ever leave Disney, uh, I'm going to have to drop the Bartholomew Lewis crab thing because that's licensed or blue crab. But 
I could also just go with Bartholomew Lewis. I chose that because the middle name sounds like a last name too, and I could pull that off. They might bitch about it, but they would leave it alone. Or I could just go by the nickname Blue, and that would work. Because, but only because there's so many people that know me under that name. Not in the magic world. I'm I'm nobody in the magic world. I wouldn't say nobody. I think people are starting to to know at least your name if they don't know you. That they know your Christian, name. And your Christian audience. Painter tells me every time he goes to a convention because he writes for MUM magazine. Okay. Peter Samuelson, um, Christopher Carter, who does a lot of great. Well, we're interviewing Peter Samuelson. Christopher Carter, he's he's busy, busy, busy as a mentalist. Him and John Stetson are huge in the mentalism world. But, um, yeah, we, um, I don't know, they, we, we talk and I just, you know, we don't, like I said, they don't, they tell me when they go to conventions, people bring out my name sometimes. And, and they, and, and, and Christian's always calling me and go, you really need to go to a convention. I, go, I can't, I can't. And I'm not interested. Yeah, there's no, there's no reason. Yeah, when, when could you, I know guys like, like, uh, did, did you, did you interview, um, Tony Brent? Yeah. Yeah. Tony's like that. And he, the only reason he went to the genie things, cause it was like, it was back then. Yeah. It was like, it's all the workers. It's funny. It's the only time that we would see each other is if there was a convention in Orlando, all of the workers would get together. Oh yeah. Okay. You guys go into the convention. Too? Okay. I'll see you there. That was the only time that we saw each other outside of like passing each other in the hallway at a gig or something like that. We'd see each other. But, Carl, Carl Skeens told me that when he was there at, at uh, Hollywood Studios now, yeah. Studios, playing the role of Andy Mation, he said every time there was a clown convention that would come to Orlando, he said, I would change everything in my show for that week. Mm-hmm. Because I knew there were people that would come up and just sit there and film the whole thing. And then I'd see my work everywhere. copied everywhere in the sites. And I said, and he goes, I imagine most of them do that, <laughs> change it completely because you're going to get your act copied. Oh, yeah, quickly. <laughs> Man. In this industry, people yeah. like to do that. Yeah. The, the thing at Disney, too, it's taught me a lot about being uh, simple with my approaches. Like, I look, when I publish these things in uh, my books and stuff, a lot of what I do isn't that hard to do. Um, like, if I was this. Uh, if, if I said, here, take the cards and shuffle them. Shuffle You know how to shuffle? Yeah, you want me to ruin your stack? Yeah, dude, I can put it back. I know, I know. I know. I'll just... <laughs> a little there. Yeah. Okay. Oh, oh you, I didn't really need it back. But i tell you what I'm going to do. What I want you to do, I'm going to look this direction. And what I do, I want you to reach over here, lift up this corner, and then peek at a card somewhere in the middle, okay? If you would just do that. I'm sorry. Did you get it? No. Okay. Huh? I didn't look at it. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's just kind of hard. Did you get a card? Yes. Yeah. Okay. We're about to drop <laughs> Do me a favor. Hold your hand out. Dude, I'm about to drop them all. 52 pickup looks really good. Um, if you would, shuffle them up again. Looks good. Are you done? Yes. Okay. I don't want to touch them. I want you to imagine yourself in a movie theater. I want you to think of your card been in a, using imagination in a, in a clear, concise way so I have something to lock in on. I cannot read people's thoughts. But I, I do, ever since I was a kid, there were reasons I started trusting my gut instinct, what women call intuition. And um, I, don't, I don't get people's thoughts unless you were going to go, 
well, what was I thinking when I drove all the way up here from Orlando? I go, well, the same thing I'm thinking when I'm behind people in front of me that I want out of the way. <laughs> you don't want me repeating it in, in public. So, um, <clears throat> but I, I, I've started trusting it and I get, I get hints of things. Single digits, um, letters, numbers, um, shapes, colors, things like that. Uh, so imagine this, you're in a movie theater and you're, and you're sitting, you're looking at a screen and the lights go down. You're the only one in there, so there's no distractions. And you're, uh, you're waiting for the, the trailers to come up because the lights have gone down. But instead of a trailer, an image of your card appears on that screen. Can you see it? Okay, I'm putting myself in that room kind of with you there. And I'm getting in a picture of a, um, it's a playing card. We know that. And it's a dark card. It's a, it's a, cl- it's a, it's a, it's a black card. Um, I'm a, a spade. And it's, um, I almost want to say a high card, but it's not quite a high card. Not like a face card or anything, but not quite down as low as five. So it's like a, maybe a seven, eight or nine. And you kind of grin there on the eight. So I'm going to trust my gut and go with the eight, the eight of spades. That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Now that is nothing more than, um, I call it handout and it's, it's the glimpse from, um, Henry Hayes book, the amateur magician's handbook. All I did was come up with a way to justify the peak. And by telling, if I tell, if I do this and they get it and I turn my hand over and I go, hold out your hand, but I'm, the no, table's here, that. but I'm doing this. I take that. Actually, that is a no. routine. The minute you turn your so hand, I'm like, that's brilliant. And then I, go, I do this around their hand, and then I have to look to see what the card is. Well, here's another cool part about this. Put your hand out. Let's say you looked at this card, okay? So so I, I, I do this, and I'm doing this. Now, he's, see the way his hands are cut? I say, I'm going to drop these in your hand. But I see the two of diamonds. But when I when I drop them in his hand, they coalesce on their own. And and I make the joke about yeah, fifty two pickup looks real professional at Disney. And I, <laughs> I but I get my thing. They think I'm zeroing in on their hand. Yeah. It's and I get people that swear. I, and then when I turn back around, I go shuffle them. And I, have you finished? Because I'm getting a crick in my neck. They swear I never turned around. Yeah. And I go, I did. I turned around, and looked right at it. Yeah. It's yeah. and to me, I think that's almost silly. Was it worth publishing? But then I get people that go, I use it all the time. So I don't know. I think that stuff, like one of my favorite tricks, and it's really one of the only ones that I do anymore, is similar. It happens in their hands, but it's like there's no, there's really no word. The trick is so done before you're even into what they think is the effect of what's going to happen. That story that you create, you bring them into the movie theater and all of that. It's so... It's so rich, it gives them a visual, lets them play in their imagination, and most people don't get a chance to play in their imagination. Right, that is, that's a great point. They don't get to play there. And, and we do, and we get to play in that I don't think magicians exploit that enough. I don't though. think they, they do either. They just say, well, yeah, we're going to do this. They, particularly magicians who dabble in mentalism, they treat the mentalism effect as a throwaway. Yeah. Yeah, I just did this. I go, think about what you just did. Or... Like on to the next. Yeah, there's no moment. Well, uh, there's like say when the one of the, my pet peeves is guys that do the trick mental epic, any version of it at all. They look at the first guy, and they go, "Okay, I'm committed. I put the 
I've written it on the chalkboard. I dropped it in the glass. I'm committed. For the for the benefit of everybody else, what what number did you think of? And and when they go 42, everybody goes, okay, keep that number in mind. And then you go to your second one. I think there should be a look on my face when you go 42. I should go, you know, like because I in a moment I'm going to say I got it. So I should be okay. It worked. But magicians don't do that. They just give you that flat stare and they move on to the next one by rote. And those little subtleties, I think, is the difference between that's what separates the good from the bad, from the ugly in our business. Anyway, Absolutely. what are you doing now if you're not doing magic? I mean, I can't believe this book. I just, I did a year out in Vegas. I was the chief branding officer for a... We jammed on some magic and Mick played some ukulele tunes for Jason. We said our farewells, and Mick went back off into the South Carolina night. Jason was a bit under the weather, so he retreated to the comfort of the hotel while I drove into Savannah, Georgia for a night of karaoke before making the morning drive home back to Orlando.